Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for a beautiful new day. And Lord, we thank you so much for camp meeting. We thank you for the privilege we have of coming together as fellow believers in an atmosphere where we can sense your presence and your holy angels and get a little foretaste of heaven. Father, this morning we need your spirit, the spirit of truth, to give us clarity of thought, to help us to understand not only why we believe what we believe from Scripture, but how we can share it with others. So, Father, we pray that you would guide us and bless us to this end, for we ask it in the name of Jesus, for his sake. Amen. Okay, let's see here. Where do I want to begin? We were in the um, It Is Written lesson guide, so let's look at that. And I'm going to tell you what we're going to look at today, by God's grace. There's a there's study number seven called Quality Time is about the Sabbath. And then study number six is called Peace on Earth, and that's about the law. And then study number 18 is the mystery of a mystery beast of Revelation. That's the one in the Antichrist we were looking at yesterday. And um, we're also going to be looking at the mark of the beast. I don't know how far we're going to get into the USA today. We'll see what we can do. But we really want to spend some time on the law and the Sabbath because in everything that we look at, it really uh, is a, a central part of our message. I mean, we can say Christ is a central part of our message, but something that we'll get into in the Sabbath study that even the It Is Written study doesn't get into the way I like is that it was Christ who instituted the Sabbath. A lot of Christians don't understand that. We say that God made the Sabbath in the beginning before sin, but a lot of people don't, remember, don't realize that the part of the Godhead who made the Sabbath was Jesus Christ, because he created all things were made by him, without him nothing was made that was made. And so it's really a central uh, uh, a focal point, um, something else that we've touched on, but I didn't look at the passage, and I want you to take your Bibles and go to Romans 6. This is... You'll notice that depending on who's teaching or who wrote the lesson or whatever else, everybody has their favorite passages that they'll try to bring a point out from. Romans 6 and verse 16 is really a fabulous passage when you're talking about the real um, essence of obedience. You've heard us say a, a number of times now that obedience is, is really about exercising your faith, is about loyalty to God, is not legalism. But I want you to notice it's about worship. I've talked about that, how obedience is the highest form of, of uh, uh, love you can show to somebody. Look at what Paul says in Romans 6 and verse 16. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, and some translations by servants to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you what? Obey, whether of sin leading to death, or of obedience leading to righteousness. Now, what's his point? His point is you're the servant of... Are you the servant of the one you say you're the servant of? No. Not necessarily. You're the servant of the one you render obedience to, regardless what your profession is. And this is... Paul's point is obedience is what indicates where your service lies. And that's why it becomes the issue that it does in the end of time. It really is the indicator of where our loyalty and allegiance is. Now, we're looking at the study of the Antichrist power. I'm going out of the mystery of uh, Beast of Revelation guide. We talked about how this is a counterfeit 
the Antichrist is a counterfeit Christ of a counterfeit Christianity. And I erased all that and put some other stuff up here. Um, when we looked at our four points, uh, we talked about how the images, the beasts of Daniel 7 and the kingdoms of Daniel 7 are a parallel of the beasts of Daniel 2, or I'm sorry, the image of Daniel 2. Now, I want you to look at this chart that I gave you yesterday. Is there anybody who does not have one of these charts? Let me know if you don't. Okay, there's a few who do not. Who can, can somebody pass a view out for me, please? I'm going to give you some of these and just hand those. Keep your hands up if you don't have one of these. All this is, it's a chart that my brother and I made up years ago, and I've added a little bit to it since, but it's, a, it's just a parallel chart where you have the kingdoms on the side, and then you'll notice that there's three columns, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8. Now, if I had ha wanted to take the time and made a wider page and everything else, I would have included Daniel 10 to 12. Uh, what you'll find is that in Daniel, there are four different visions that parallel these kingdoms. They're always running through the same kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. In Daniel 2, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Daniel 7. In Daniel 8, we're moving into the Persian Empire in the time Daniel's writing. So, he, does, I'm so, so we, he leaves Babylon out and we just go Persia, Greece, Rome. And then, of course, the breakup of Rome, the little horn, the papacy. And you come into Daniel 9 through 11, I'm sorry, 10, 10 through 12, and you have the same thing, starting highlighting the Persian Empire and then Greece and then Rome with a lot more detail. And I like to describe it as um, if you've ever taken video of something, you know, a lot of times when a person is videoing something, they want to get what's called an establishment shot. Where, where are we? You know, it's kind of a wide view of where we are. And then I just don't want to take my whole video way back here. It's a kid's birthday. So I'm going to zoom in and there's the kid and he's blowing out the she or he blowing out the candles and whatever else. And so you start with this wide focus and you oftentimes will what they call in video pan your audience, right? You move around because you want, you know, this is what's going on here. And then you'll zoom into things for detail. Okay, now in theological circles, it's called the expand and enlarge principle. And then all that saying is when you're going through prophecy, Daniel does it and Revelation does it. You'll get a big picture and then you'll get a repetition with more detail and a repetition with more detail. And that's what we have. Daniel 2 is very basic, doesn't give a whole lot of detail. Daniel 7, we zoom in a little bit, and now we get more detail. Daniel 8 and 9, we zoom in a little bit, we get more detail. But it's a repetition of the process. And what's beneficial in that is, if there was just one chapter dealing with these empires of prophecy, and then the other vision was entirely different, and then the other vision was entirely different, then it would be, in some ways, it would be anybody's best guess. It's like, yeah, well, you say it's Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome, but how can we know for sure? But when you lay one over top of the other, over top of the other, why do you repeat something? Parents, why do you repeat things to your children? <laughs> so they get it, right? And the Lord repeats and enlarges and repeats and enlarges so that we can have confidence that we're on the right track when we're dealing with these, uh, these prophecies. So that's just for reference. It has a lot of handy little things in there. But we're in, in uh, Daniel 7, and we have you open your Bible there again, and we'll be using this in the lesson and I told you yesterday, well, let's, again, bring us up to speed. So we looked at the fact that, according to the Bible, Antichrist is not somebody who's opposed to Christianity, but an imposter within Christianity, a counterfeit power, something that pretends to be Christian, but it's not. 
gives us a little clue as to what we're looking for. We come into Daniel chapter 7 and we see the four beasts. We've looked at how these are. We looked at Daniel's chiasm. We've looked at other evidences that help us to see that this is a repetition. So we're seeing the kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's all the same. But what's new in Daniel, and then you have the ten horns. Well, that's equivalent to the ten toes. So that's so far, we're seeing the same thing we saw in Daniel 2. But then we see this little horn. So this is this new thing. And there's a lot of attention given to the little horn. And this is the thing Daniel asks about. I wanted to know the truth. So look at, at Daniel 7 in verse 19. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. In fact, go back to verse 17. And Pastor Bohr touched on this the other night. Daniel asks the angel about these beasts. And the angel says, whoa, this is, this is what I just showed you, Daniel. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings. And we looked at that. They're representing their kingdoms. We find that further on in the chapter. They're four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. That's it. In other words, Daniel sees all of this in this vision, and the angel's like, oh, you want to know what that means? The four beasts that you saw, they're just four kingdoms, and finally God's people are going to inherit the kingdom. Okay? We clear on that? I mean, Daniel, Daniel, I'm hoping that you aren't relating to Daniel, who's saying, is that all you're going to tell me? <laughs> I want to know more. And that's exactly what Daniel says. When the angel gives me the explanation, then he says, then I wish to know. Right? But what's interesting is he doesn't say, then I wish to know more about the first beast and the second beast and the third beast. Did he? He said, I wish to know more about that fourth beast. That one was the one that unsettled him. That was the one, there's something different about it, and that's what the Bible says. He was different than the others. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head. Now, I want you to notice that once we move into this, you have Daniel asking a question, and then you have an angel giving the answer, and in the question and the answer, there are clues that we are going to use to identify who this is. And that's the key part of your study, is identifying the Antichrist. How many of you have ever been in a situation, maybe you've given a study on the Antichrist, or maybe you've just talked to somebody about the Antichrist, and they're all like, you know, puzzled about the Antichrist, and you're like, yeah, I know who the Antichrist power is. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. That's what we do in a, in a, in a prophecy meeting. People are like, what? You got it in your flyer. It's like the Antichrist. You're going you're gonna to tell us who it is? Well, yeah. That's what, you know who it is? Some people just think that the Antichrist is just some curious thing that we won't know until he shows up, and they don't realize that the Bible gives these clues. So this is a real eye-opener for people in a lot of ways, as we talked about yesterday. So I want to pick up on some things. I'm going to read through this and the interpretation again, and then we're going to put up, I want to look at the clues that the lesson gives, and I'm going to tell you which ones I'm going to use and why. Okay? So Daniel's asking the question, and I'll highlight them as we go through. Uh, I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. We're looking at verse uh, 19. It was exceedingly dreadful with teeth of iron, its nails of bronze. So we see a reference back to the image with the iron and the bronze. I don't make a lot of that, but I think it's, you know, it's not accidental either. Which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with his feet. Verse 20, and the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, 
namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Okay, so you have the ten horns on the head of which beast? Fourth beast. What's the fourth beast? Rome. You have the little horn comes up among the ten which came up out of Rome, which means when we're looking for the Antichrist, we're going to be looking where? To Rome. He's going to have something to do with Rome, right? I mean, you can't get away from that when you understand the um, imagery here. So the, the ten horns come up. Daniel says they came up, obviously, out of the head. Three of the horns of the ten fell to make way for this little horn. He speaks with a little horn, about, tells us he speaks pompous words. And uh, verse 21, he says, I was watching, etc. I'm going to jump past. That's that judgment scene. And so we're just looking for clues right now, which your lesson will do too when you're studying it. So he asks this question, brings up all these details, and then the angel answers him in verse 23. Thus he said, right? Daniel said, I wish to know more. This is what he said to Daniel. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth, Trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. And another shall arise, what? After them. That's key. Okay, so two things that we find. Well, let me, let me go through this again. He shall be different from the first ones and shall what? Subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law, then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. That verse right there has most of your clues in it. It's just packed. But it says the court shall be seated and it'll take away his dominion to consume it forever, etc. Now I want to look at the clues and I want you to take your, your study guide, your mystery uh, beast of revelation, and incidentally we're still in Daniel for the mystery beast of revelation. So we'll look at Revelation shortly. But we're drawing these clues out of Daniel, and it says uh, on page, it's not page, number eight. Number eight lists ten clues, okay? You can go over, I, I suppose if I'm giving the study, I'll probably touch on the ten clues, but I want to I wanna highlight the ones that I think are the clearest clues here. The first one here in the study guide says it arises from Western Europe among the rest of the horns, okay? So, so Daniel 8, Daniel 7, verse 8, rather, talks about the little horn coming up where? Daniel says in verse 8, I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one, coming up what? Among, speaking of the ten, among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. Now, the other, you know, so going through, we said that the, the three horns were displaced by this horn and everything else. This verse in verse 8 says they were actually plucked out by the roots. When you take something out by the root, what happens? It doesn't come back, right? And so that's being conveyed here. You have the ten horns. Now, the ten horns, if you look at that parallel chart, we didn't spend a lot of time on this. When the Roman Empire was broken up, there were ten Major divisions, which you'll see at the bottom, very bottom of the handout. And a little asterisk, because it's referring up here to, in the toes, there's an asterisk there, and it's 
these are the toes. These are the ten toes. These are the ten horns, which also has that asterisk. You have the Anglo-Saxons, which became Great Britain. You have the Alemanni. Anybody speak French here? What's French for Germany? The Alemannia. Alemannia, right? You have the Alemanni, which is Germany, the Visigoths, which is Spain. In other words, they, they weren't, at the time, this is what they were. They were these tribes, Germanic tribes, the Alemanni, the Visigoths, the Franks, the Suevi, the Burgundians, the Lombards, the Heruli, the Vandals, the Ostrogoths, all of these tribes which became these nations of Europe. And as I mentioned the other day, now there's more than 10 nations of, of Europe today. But this is how it started out. And I've told you that sometimes people will contest this with me. They'll, they'll say, well, how do you know there are 10 some... Well, how do you know there weren't? First of all, that's a good question to ask. When somebody challenges you and say, well, how do you know? Where's your proof for that? Well, where's your proof it isn't that way? There are some things that there is not proof either way. In other words, one historian says one thing, one historian says another. The fact that there were 10 is not a key part of the prophecy. In other words, if there were 9 or there were 12, it doesn't change what the prophecy is telling us. In other words, when the Bible talks about the 10 toes, you can't put 12 toes on a foot because most people have 10 toes on the feet, right? And so the feet is just using, in the image, is using the division, and it's picking up the same imagery in Daniel chapter 7. The point is that Rome was divided. And I believe it was divided up into ten parts, and when people ask me, well, how do you know it was ten parts? Well, historians bear that out. Well, I've read a history book, and I'll say, well, my historian agrees, disagrees with yours, I guess, but the Bible says there were ten, and historians say, so here's the ten, okay? But the point is that these became the modern nations of Europe. And uh, when I share this in a, in a prophecy series, I'll go through the list, and then you have the last three that were uprooted, and I share these on my Daniel 2 study. And then I tell them, I'll say, you know, the, these three were uprooted. You guys want to know why they were uprooted? They're like, yeah. I say, come back when we talk about the Antichrist power. Oh, man. But at any rate, there were, the, these, these uh, divisions became modern Europe, okay? And so the Bible says, in giving the clue, that the fourth beast would, and I, this, is, uh, this is how I'm going to put it here. It's going to rise from the Antichrist power. Arises from Rome, right? From the fourth beast, or you could say modern Europe, right? Rome or Europe, the divisions of Rome. That's where he's going to come up, according to the Bible. Okay? Right? So when I'm going through the study with somebody, what your lessons are going to do, whatever lesson you're using, it's going to bring up these points, and it's important for you to remember that this is not Adventist stuff. We're drawing right out of Scripture. We're establishing the four beasts. Once you've got the four beasts down, it becomes easy because you're just plugging things in. Okay, to rock, the little horn, which is the Antichrist, and maybe I should have put that little horn comes up out of the head of that fourth beast. So he rises from the fourth beast. Now, the, the next one, and I'm going to explain this to you, okay? So I'm going to put it up here. Now, where do you get that? It rises to power after 476 A.D. Where do you get that from the Bible? Here's what you need to understand. First of all, it tells us in Daniel that the little horn rises up among them. You remember it saying that? Okay. Now, for me to be among somebody, for, for example, if I came here this morning at 8 o'clock, would I be among you? Why not? Because you weren't here. I don't think anybody was here anyway. Maybe you were. 
waiting a long time. So you weren't here. I couldn't be among you. You have to be present if I'm going to be among you. The ten horns had to be there if this little horn was going to rise up among them. Then the Bible also says in the interpretation in verse 24, ten horns or ten kings which shall rise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. Now, we know from history that the breakup of Rome was not complete until 476 A.D. It wasn't complete. You didn't have your ten horns yet. And one of the, one of the most well-known historians who's written on that is a guy named Edward Gibbon who wrote a six-volume classical set that, 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 that historians refer to to this day called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Edward Gibbon. I've got some, I've got these uh, a lot of this these resources in one of the handouts here, and I'll show you that decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Six volumes about this thick, just to read about the decline and fall. It's not on the whole Roman Empire. It doesn't even go into the rise of the Roman Empire. Just decline and fall. But the point is, the historians are agreed. Even if you don't nail it to this exact date, the exact date is not essential. The fact is, you're in the 5th century A.D. before this breakup of Rome is complete. So this uh, little horn power can't rise up among something that's not there. And so he had to wait until sometime in the 5th century A.D. to rise to power. Okay? Now the Bible goes on to give us some other clues here. It says one of the things, a lesson, yes? Uh, in verse uh, 17, Yes. When it says, those great beasts, which are four, four kings, which are rising out of the earth. Right. When we look at Revelation, and we see rising out of the water, being uh, densely populated, and then the earth being scarcely populated, then here it says that they all four rose out of the earth, which would have been in the same, would have been scarcely populated area. Okay, but the, the only thing, he's asking a question about the earth. Is in verse 17, it talks about the earth. And if we've got, we haven't gotten into a study on the U.S. in prophecy, which in the vision rises up, you're you don't want to take the language of the vision with the language of the explanation and the interpretation. In other words, the vision says, these beasts rose up out of the sea. Daniel commenting on it says, yeah, so these beasts that came up out of the earth, he's not, he's not giving a symbolic, uh, 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 he's not making a symbol He's simply relating the facts that he saw. In other words, we're not equivalating the earth um, or the beast coming up out of the sea as, what would you do here? Make that the equivalent of the earth? Okay, the sea means the earth. That's what you would have to do if you're taking that, um, what Daniel was saying here as an, as, a, as an explanation. Daniel's just repeating to the angel what he just saw and he's asking a question about it. Okay, so the rising up, and again, if, when we get into, if we get into the U.S. and prophecy, you'll see that the, the beast, of, the second beast of Revelation 13 rises up out of the earth. Um, I'm trying to answer it quickly and not take the time. So it's actually something I don't have time to get a lot into. I would just say that this, Daniel's not interpreting the symbol here. And, and I leave it at that at this point. And if we have more questions, more time, we can address that. So you've got the ten divisions, they're rising, uh, the, the little horn rises up out of the fourth beast in this division area, and we have the timing of it because we know when the horns came into their existence. So this is, I mean, these are very helpful. Well, I'm trying to find out who the Antichrist is, right? Who is this little horn power? 
He's representing some power. He's going to come up from Rome, among the divided Rome, or in, in nations of Europe. He's going to rise to power sometime after 476 AD. The Bible brings up the fact that he's different from all the other beasts. I've never... Jim, have you ever gone into that? Yeah. Okay. I rarely go into it myself. It's... I, and one of the reasons, I guess, is this is one of the things you'll find when you get into studying prophecy. Um, there are certain things that are very clear and very consistent, even among Seventh-day Adventists. There are others, for example, let's go to Revelation 17. Let's talk about the seven heads of the beast, and what are they? There are three main interpretations in the Adventist church and all kinds of other interpretations in the Adventist church. Then you go outside the Adventist church and you get even more. And so there are certain things that there's so much... There's just, there's a lot of different opinion on, okay? The fact that this beast is different from the others is, is not universally agreed upon. Usually, most, I think most interpreters say that the, the thing that made it different is, what do you understand it? Yeah, it was religious, okay? But that's not true. Because Nebuchadnezzar, his kingdom was, he was served as a god, Right? Darius in the Persian Empire. What was the whole issue in Daniel chapter 6? Worship me, right? And so I have a hard time giving that explanation because it's not... Now, if we were going to say it was, it was a professed Christian nation, then I could go for that. So that's, it's just one of those things that it, it was different. It was unique. And, and if I were to give an explanation for why it was different, I'd say it's different because it was the only one of all those nations that professed to worship the God of heaven. Okay, professed the little horn, professed to be a Christian nation, and that would make it different from all the others. But some of the explanations bring up the fact that it was a religious, it was civil and religious at the same time. That 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 was the same. That was true with Babylon, or you wouldn't have the the fiery furnace. That was true with Persia, or you wouldn't have the lion's den. Yes. So the last three are uprooted. Is Rome replaced? Yeah, I'm going to go into that in just a minute. I'm going to put the clues up, and then I'm going to tell you why we believe those clues point to Rome. So right now, all I'm doing is we're looking at the Bible and saying, what is the Bible pointing out? Well, the Bible points out the little horn arises up out of the fourth image. The Bible points out that the little horn arises among the ten and after the ten. So it would have to be after they're established in 470. I just threw the, I plugged in the 476 date, but I could just say that it would rise after the, little, the ten horns were established. Uh, the lesson brings out the fact that it was diverse from the others. Um, but I want to go into, there are clearer clues, I guess is the point I'm, I'm, I'm making. When you go on into, uh, the next clues I would draw would be in verse 25. Most of them, well, not in verse 25. He's going to subdue three kings. I'm going to bring that up with the horn. It says in verse 25 that he's going to speak pompous words against the Most High. Okay, now I'm going to substitute a word here. And we'll look at why in just a minute. But it says he would speak, if, if you were to, if you were to uh, use another word for that, what, what, what do you call words that are spoken against God? Blasphemies, blasphemies right? That's, that's the word I was thinking of. Oops, I can't just put the word blasphemies. He speaks blasphemies. Now it's important, obviously, when you're going in your study, with somebody to establish what a blasphemy is. And you've, if you've been through a presentation of this, you know that we usually go to, there's a couple passages. One is in Mark chapter 2, so let's do that. Let's establish blasphemies here. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, it says, 
he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Now, remember, I told you, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I wouldn't do this right off in a study, okay? And the reason is, this is one of the things that becomes hard in teaching a class, is I know you have questions, and so we're, and I'll jump here, and I'll jump there, and I'll show you things, but what happens is you lose the momentum of what the study would be. And I just want you to understand that when I'm answering your questions here, I wouldn't be derailing the study constantly like that. In the study, I'm going to go through it, we're going to get there, okay? But here, I may segue, and I'll show you over here, this is why, because it's hanging in your mind. How do we get this? I'm going to tell you, it's not hanging in the mind of the person you're studying with. You're like, well, how do I prove that? I mean, the Bible doesn't say blasphemies. It says pompous words, and pompous is even italicized. How do I even, you know, and you're thinking about this. They're not thinking that when you're giving them the study. I'm just telling you right now. They're not like, how do they know for sure it's blasphemies? They're not asking that. But we get all bogged down so, so that you can be confident in our interpretation. If you hold your finger in Daniel and go to Revelation 13, we do this later in the study. I don't spend a lot of time in Revelation 13 in this study. In fact, we'll, we'll spend, and most, it depends on the, on the angle that, that the evangelist is taking, if they're presenting it, or the study is taking. But I'll establish it from Re, uh, Daniel chapter 7, and then I'll just show Revelation 13 very quickly. You can see the parallels. In fact, I usually wait for this, and you'll see why in a minute. Because what Revelation 13 brings up is stuff we haven't put up here yet. And so it just kind of... So I'll probably do it twice. So if you go to Revelation 13, notice what it says in verse 1. Daniel says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw what? How many? One beast rising up out of the... Where did Daniel see the beast rising up out of? Out of the sea, right? Having seven heads and... Ten horns. So we see similarity there, what did not the heads, but he has seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads what? A blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a what? A leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Now where have we seen that before? Bear, lion, leopard. You know, Daniel 7 is the only place you're going to find that. So you have in Daniel 7, you have all these beasts rising up out of the sea. John sees one beast rising up out of the sea, and it's very interesting as he describes it in the order that he puts the beasts. What does he see first? He says he has a body like a... Wait, wait, wait. The beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like a... Bear, his mouth like a lion. What order did, so he's got leopard, bear, lion. How did Daniel bring it up? Lion, bear, leopard. Why? Because when Daniel saw it, it was yet to come. But when John sees it, all that exists is the fourth beast. And think about this for a minute. When a nation conquers another nation, what happens to the nation they conquered? Have you ever heard of Greco-Roman culture? What does that mean? That means Greece was swallowed up by Rome. They didn't disappear. The Greeks didn't disappear. They just became subject to the Romans, right? And so what you have is you have a beast in Revelation 13 that's just a conglomeration of all of these because what you have is Rome, who has conquered uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Well, they've all sub subsequently been conquered, and so they're all rolled in there. And John looks backwards. You can't help, a person you're studying with can't help to see the parallels right away. Let's see, beasts coming up out of the sea. The only difference that there's one instead of four is because all the others have passed behind in the time period that John is writing in. 
And so he says, verse three, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And I'm not going to take the time. And this is where you get their differences of opinion on, on the heads. But in general, we understand the heads as being the different powers throughout history that the devil has worked with. And we know that three of those heads are Babylon, Medo, Persia, and Greece, <laughs> or four of the heads in Rome. But then there's other question as to which I'm not going to get into. But that's the, the, the idea. He says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they what? Worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him. Now notice, and he was given a mouth speaking what? Great things. Remember, we looked at that yesterday, right? The marginal reading, when it says the pompous words that he was speaking, was literally great things. Well, here in Revelation, it says great things and blasphemies. In Daniel 7, it said great things against the Most High. What are those? Blasphemies. And so this is just a confirmation for us. When we're talking about this beast speaking great things, that doesn't mean he's just saying, you know, talking about himself or whatever else. He's speaking against God. And that, it tells us that in Daniel, but then it actually brings the word blasphemies in in the book of Revelation. Like I said, usually I'll come into this after the fact. Now, since we're here, he's speaking great things and blasphemies, and he's given authority to continue for how long? 42 months. So there's a time period. We're going to look at that in a minute. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. I'm going to refer to that in a minute too. It was granted him to make what? War with the saints and to overcome them. We're going to see that all in the book of Daniel. And so what I'll usually do is I'll go through the clues in Daniel. I'll establish that. And then I'll cap it off by going to Revelation and say, wow, here at the end of time, this power to contend with the end of time is the one Daniel pointed out way back here. And we see all these same characteristics. But that's where I get the idea, well, another place where we can confirm the idea of blasphemies. So what is a blasphemy according to Scripture? We'll go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And this is when the paralytic was brought to Jesus for healing. You probably know the story. I'm not going to take the time to read through a lot of it. But we're going to look at verse 5. When the friends of this paralytic brought him to Jesus, Mark chapter 2 verse 5. Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are what? Forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, let me just back up even before this, this uh, scripture uh, definition. Does anybody here know what, a blas what a blasphemy really is by definition? Okay. For man taking, claiming any prerogative of God. That's what blasphemy is. Now, this is giving a context. One of those examples is if man claims to forgive sins. And in this case, here's Jesus. He's claiming to forgive sins. How can he do that? He's a man, and he's claiming a, a prerogative that belongs to God. This man speaks blasphemies. So one of the definitions the Bible gives for blasphemy is um, man claiming power to forgive sin. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you, when you get to this point in your study, your people are pretty well there. I'm just going to tell you, you don't go up. How many places? How many? Let's see. Rises up out of Rome in the 
time period that we lean to calling the Dark Ages, and he claims the power to forgive sins. I mean, that alone is really clear, but that's one definition for blasphemy that we see in this scripture. And let's look at another one in John chapter 10, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 10. And we're looking at verse 31. Well, let's start in verse 30 to give us a little bit of a run in here. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus speaks and says, I and my father, what? Are one. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, what? Make yourself God. And again, that fits with the dictionary definition of man claiming the authority of God. In this case, man claiming to be God, right? Or, or let's say the place of God. Place of God, equality with God, something like that. Anyway, the, the, those, those two definitions, I mean, I'm telling you, as you're, as you're studying with people, uh, you're narrowing the field here. But let's look at a couple of the clues from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. That's why I'm saying there's a lot of things you could go into when you're trying to prove who the Antichrist is, but it's not necessary. These clues are pretty plain. Okay, so in verse 25, again, in Daniel 7, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. The next thing says he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. Okay, so he persecutes, who are the saints? Persecutes God's people, right? And then it says, he shall intend to change times and law. Or think to change, depending on your translation. And in the context, he's speaking about his blasphemies against God, and he's attempting to change God's law. And then finally, it says, the saints shall be given into his hand, for time, times, and half a time. So, I'm just going to put, he'll reign for a time, times, and half. I'm just going to leave it that way, so I don't have to write more. Now, that time period, and some of these things obviously take explanation, but understand that all we've done here is put what the Scripture says. We've just, we've just put... Um, I, I could have put great things and blasphemies here, but I've just put on the board the clues the Bible gives us. Now I'm going to plug in the clues. Who do they fit? Who, who does this address? I'm looking for this little horn. I'm trying to identify it. I'm taking the Bible prophecy. I'm looking at the clues the Bible gives me. I've just listed them out. Who fits these clues? Um, and, and in order to clarify, there's a couple things, like I said, blasphemies, well, what does that mean? Right? I'm going to, I want to know who, who this fits, this description fits, so I've got to know what I'm talking about, blasphemies, and then I've got to know what I'm talking about with the time, times, and half a time. And so, if you look at your lesson on page, well, not page, there's not a page number, where you've got the little chart like this on the top, on the top right-hand side, you'll see that there are seven places in the, in the Scripture that refer to this time period. They're all referring to the same time period. Okay, Daniel 7.25, you know, that doesn't help me out 
like Revelation 12 does. I want you to look at Revelation 12. It's helpful, but I want you to see Revelation 12, because if I'm trying to explain to somebody what time, times, and half a time is, there are some Bible translations that instead of time, times, and half a time, will say one year, two years, and half a year. Okay? Now, I'm sharing that with you. Just with, uh, Bible translations aren't put together by a person with the exception of a handful, like the message by Eugene Peterson. And if it is by one person, it will say. But your, your, most of your Bibles are put together by committees. And the whole committee agreed that time, times, and half a time is equivalent to one year, two years, and half a year. And some translations have, have come out like that. Now, I'm, I'm only saying that to say, you know, we're not sharing some wacky thing that our church cooked up, and it's only in the Andrews Study Bible. Okay? You hear what I'm saying? I'm, I'm just saying that so you understand that this, incidentally, everything that we're sharing about the Antichrist was believed by the Protestants, by the Reformers, who were Catholics, as I mentioned before. So time, times, and half a time, if I'm trying to explain it, to me, my favorite place to go is Revelation 12, and you'll see why. Because if you go to Revelation 12 and look at verse... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start in verse 13. Are you there? You want to look at this? Revelation 12, verse 13 says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the who? The woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might what? Fly where? Into the wilderness to her place. I'm emphasizing all this because it's going to come into play in just a minute. Where she is nourished for how long? A time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now go back to verse 6. Same chapter, very same chapter. Chapter 12, verse 6. Then the woman fled where? Hey, I saw this before, right? We just saw this. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should... Feed, what was the word used later on in the chapter? Nourish, right? Same idea. Feed her there in the wilderness for how long? 1,260 days. Okay? So what the Bible has just done for us is it's made time times and half a time equivalent to 1,260 days. How does it do that? Yeah, it's a parallel thought. It's a parallel thought. And so you have, the only thing that changes is some of your verbiage. So you have time, times, and half a time, 1,260 days. As I said, uh, these are prophetic words. Most scholars are agreed. As I said, Bible translations, was that a time is singular, so it's one. Times is two and half a time. One year, two years, and half a time, that's three and a half years. How many days in three and a half years? 1,260 if you're using a lunar calendar. This gets a little... It's not, it's not a, a big issue, but it's a little... You'll find that, that in prophecy, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I don't go to a lot of uh, 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 great lengths to try to prove everything as I'm going through. Because here's what's going to happen. Let me just jump, jump to the gun a little bit. Jump the gun a little bit here. I'm going to come back to this. Uh, in, the, in the Bible, and I could give you verses for this, and I think I have them in one of the study guides. But in prophecy, it uses a 360-day uh, a uh, year. 
Okay, Jews often employed a lunar calendar, and I could show you that in the book of Genesis, but you have uh, 360 days in the lunar year, so one year, two years, and half a year would be 1,260 days. How many, how long would that be in months? 3.45 years. Okay, 3.45. How, how many months? Do you remember in Revelation 13 how long it said he reigned? 42 months. Okay, so... I mean, over and over, and we could go, there There are seven places that this lesson lists, lists out that use that time period either as 1,260 days, time times and half a time, or 42 months. It's all speaking of the same time period, which we'll go to in a minute. So when I give the clues, I want to lay the clues out here, and I will, I will suggest this in the study. Um, I don't know. I think Antichrist is usually the first study you've gotten into a day-for-year principle depending on whether you've covered the 2300 days yet or something like that. So I'll suggest that to them. I'll say, okay, it's going to rain for time, times, and half a time. And look at Revelation 12. The Bible says that's equal to 1,260 days. I'll probably share with them that, you know, some translations will actually say one year, two years, and half a year. That's how they understand this to mean. It says 1,260 days. That's why we read it that way in Revelation. That a time, times, and half a time is the same as 1,260 days. Now, in Bible prophecy, a day equals a year. And so we're talking about a reign of not 1,260 literal days, but 1,260 years. And you'll see that when we go through and apply the clues. That's what I'll tell them. And they will. And at that point, the question will be clear. I could take a lot of time right now to say, well, this is why, and look up texts. And there are texts we could look up. But the proof is in the pudding, as they used to say. So Let's look at the clues here. Arises from Rome. Most of you are aware of this. That, you know, my, my and, and I'll ask the people, actually, I'll ask the people at this point. When I've given the, the study, I'll say, now looking at the clues so far, before we actually go through them, what power in history fits these clues? Even if you're not clear on this, even if you're like, well, day for a year, I'm not sure about that. Hmm, let's see. Comes out of modern Europe, as I said, rises to power. It would be in the time of the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Claims the power to forgive sin and claims the place of God on earth. Has persecuted God's people. I mean, tell me where else you're going to go. Where else are you going to go with that? You've got a very clear picture. And somebody will usually, unfortunately, I, I usually ask the, and somebody will say, the Pope, you know. Well, it's really not the Pope, it's a system, it's a Catholic system, and at some point you establish that, and it's usually after these clues that I'll make the, you know, we'll say, well, you know, walk through who, what power on earth. I'm going to tell you, friends, there's only one power that's existed on earth that fits these clues, and that power is the Roman papacy, or the Roman Catholic Church. Now I want to make a, and, and you'll hear, evangelists will always do that, I want to make a point here that, you know, this is, this, we're, we're plugging in Bible clues, we're not talking about people here, we're not saying Catholic people are evil, or Baptist people either, any, any other Christian, but the Bible's pointing out that there are some problems with the system of religion that is called Catholicism, and, and we're going to see why as we continue on in our study. Um, but, but, you know, let's plug in the clues. Let's make sure that we're, we're on point here and see if it fits, okay? Because the bottom line is when you go through it, it's, it's as plain as day. You've got, in fact, I'm going to have you turn to... Let me just see if I have... In the Antichrist, oh, I have it out here. I handed this out yesterday. You should have it if you were here yesterday. The Antichrist and the change of the Sabbath study. 
Huh? Oh, if you have the, yeah, if you had, if you did, if you already have the folder, it's in your folder. Sorry. Yeah. You're going to find that after <laughs> the Great Controversy study, the Plan of Salvation study, Long Grace, the Sabbath, and then right after the Sabbath study. I present it, and I'm going to tell you why. I present it as the change of the Sabbath study. Now, I want you to notice something that after, and, and this is how I state it. In fact, let me tell you this with the Bible Doc studies. The way that these are written, I, there's, it's question, answer, and the italicized explanation after is all you should need to know to give a study. The explanation, now I, and I tell my students, I don't want you reading the italicized part when you give a study. I write these studies so that they can read it ahead of time in preparation and they can understand it and then they can put that point in their own words. But in most every point, so you'll see, for example, number nine at the top of the, the second page on that study. Do you see it? Yeah. Okay, how long is a time, time and half a time? And then I give the text in there. In fact, you read it, the margin of the NIV says a year, two years, and a half a year. Comparing Revelation 12.14 with 12.6, we see that this time period is also referred to as 1,260 days. The Bible uses the year-day principle in prophecy, and there's a couple texts you can look at, making this a 1,260-year period over which the Antichrist will reign. I don't go into a lot more explanation because it's going to get clear in just a minute. So, what clues can we derive from this chapter? And then I have several of the clues that we brought up here. Okay? Now notice the explanation, and I will give this, uh, some form of this when I get to this point in the study, and I've asked them, so you tell me who it is. And a lot of times before I even start the study, anytime I'm preaching this before the study, I'll say, you know, a lot of people question who the Antichrist is. Tonight we're going to get into this study, we're going to go through the Bible, and you're going to tell me who it is. Oh yeah, you're going to be, it's going to be that clear. And folks, I want to tell you, whether they speak up or not, it's for 95% for of whoever you're studying with, it's, it's clear if they have any kind of knowledge of the Catholic system. So we go through the cues, clues. Now notice the italicized print. There's only one power in history that fits all of these points. The papacy or the Roman Catholic Church state. Wycliffe, Tyndall, Luther, Calvin, Cranmer, Bunyan, Sir Isaac Newton, Wesley, uh, Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and countless others all saw the office of the papacy as the Antichrist. These... Men are known as Protestants, but few understand that they themselves were Catholics who merely protested the church's right to put tradition above Scripture. I'll bring that point in here when I'm identifying this. And then the next paragraph. It is important to distinguish between the system of Catholicism and the people of Catholicism. It is the papal system of worship that is here condemned, just as it was uh, the Jewish system of worship in Christ's day. Right? Jesus condemned their system of worship, but he didn't condemn the people. This is not an indictment of all Catholic people any more than Jesus' woes on the Pharisees or woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 were an indictment of all Jewish people. The issue is one of faithfulness to God's word. And, and, and I may put, say something like, God is trying to help us to understand that we have gotten away from his word. Right, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God is calling us back to faithfulness to his word. So I try to make it clear that that's the issue. Now let's review these seven points. Okay, now I'll have some quotes in here, then that's why I had you open. If you turn to the next page, you have, each point has a, a, a reference to it. Well, some are quotes and some are just statements. For example, rises to power amid the ruins of imperial Rome. 
No one would argue, folks, that the Roman Catholic Church is from Rome. Okay? <laughs> hmm. Let's see, rises from Rome. You understand what I'm saying? It's still to this day called the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Arises from Rome. What about arising for after 476 and overthrowing three powers, the three horns? So you understand a little bit of history, and some of you have heard this before, that um, the Roman Empire, as we said, was not conquered. And there are some real interesting connect the dots that I'm fighting going into right now because I know I don't have time for it. But Rome was a republic. That was their government. You know another great nation whose government was a republic? United States of America. Rome, as strong a nation as they were, became weakened because of their love for entertainment, right? The Colosseums and their entertainment, their love of ease, an easy life. They ran into economic troubles because of their indulgences and all that stuff. And I'm not talking about Catholic, and I'm talking about indulgence and sin and pleasure and, and vacationing and all of that stuff. Can you see any parallels between that nation and another nation that happens to be facing the same? A.T. Jones wrote a book called The Two Republics, and he contrasted Rome. And this, this was 100 years ago, but I'm going to tell you, it's just really fascinating when you look at it. Well, what happened is this, and, and this, is, this is the amazing part that as Rome was crumbling because of this internal corruption, because of its, its lost its focus and because of its desire for ease and whatever, as it was crumbling and these other Germanic nations were taking advantage of Rome and the tribes were coming in and Rome was being divided, as, as um, imperial Rome was sinking, Christian Rome was rising, right? Christianity was flourishing. And so the emperor... One of the emperors of Rome named Justinian, of course, Constantine earlier, tried to mingle. You know what? Why did Constantine try to mingle Christianity uh, with paganism? He wanted to unite the empire, right? He wanted to save the empire. And something that you need to understand that a lot of Roman Catholics don't understand is that the Catholic Church has always been a far more political church than a Christian church. It's fascist. It's saving the empire. That's what it was about. And so in order to save the empire... You know, Constantine did his thing. And then when you come down to Emperor Justinian, Justinian actually made a decree called Justinian's Decree, where he decreed that the power of the government was to go into the hands of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope of Rome, the head of the church. He did that because he felt that because the church was strong and the government was weak, he would save the weak government by transferring the power to the Pope. Yeah. Okay. You live in the United States of America, we're a republic, a republic that's crumbling, right? We've got problems in all kinds of problems, economic and otherwise. We've already had offers by the papacy to help us out with our economy, okay? You go back and you look at what happened and how the papacy came to rise is because the empire was crumbling and Catholicism said, we'll come in and we'll help you strengthen it. And to save the empire, there was the church-state union. And I'm telling you, that's what the Bible says is going to be repeated. But at any rate, um, that's why this is so significant now. This isn't just in the past. I mean, it's just history being repeated. And so what happened is Justinian made a decree to transfer the power of the government to the church. The problem is that of those ten horns, there were three powers that said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to go for it. We're going to resist that. And so... Rome joined forces and systematic, systematically uprooted the powers of the Heruli and the Ostrogoths and the Vandals. And when that last power was uprooted in 538 AD, 
which was the Ostrogoth power, I believe, then Justinian's decree went into effect. He made the decree, but it wasn't in effect. He couldn't, the government couldn't be given into the hands of the Pope yet because it was resisted by the people. And so they, they uh, uprooted those opposing powers so that they can make the way for the decree to go into effect, which happened in 538 AD. So now I want you to notice it. In, uh, in, if you look at the, under arises after 476 AD, look at the second paragraph. At that time, there was a popular viewpoint growing among some believers called Arianism. One of the beliefs of Arianism was that Jesus was a created being, which Catholicism did not teach. For this reason, the three Arian powers, the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals, withstood the decree of Justinian. As a result, in 493 AD, the Bishop of Rome, using the military might of Imperial Rome, attacked and uprooted the Heruli power. In 496 AD, Clovis, the king of the Franks, who later became the French, converted to Catholicism. Wherever he went afterward to conquer, the people were given the choice to become Catholic or move. In the year 534 AD, he made war against the Vandal Kingdom, and they were stamped out. And then finally, in 538 AD, they waged war against the Ostrogoth Kingdom and uprooted them, opening the way for the decree of Justinian to finally go into effect, and Pope Vigilius ascended to the papal throne. Now, here are a couple historical sources. The first one from Schaff's World, uh, History of the Christian Church says, Vigilius, a pliant, you know what pliant means? Kind of, uh, what's that, what did you say? Yeah, and a flexible, kind of... Uh, Coward, somebody said, a, fliant, a, a pliant creature of Theodora. You know who Theodora was? I used to think this was some Roman leader or something. It was his wife. <laughs> Vigilius, a pliant creature of Theodora, ascended the papal chair under the military protection of Belisarius. Belisarius was a general of Justinian. And he carried that into effect. And notice the date. 538 to 555. It starts with the 538 there and, and gives us that date. Now another uh, reference... Yes. Another reference is, um, the next one says, from the death of Silvarius, the Roman Catholic writers date the episcopacy of Vigilius, that is his reign, his rise to, to uh, his office, reckoning him thenceforth, from that point forward, among the lawful popes. In the book History of the Popes, volume 2, under the year what? 538 A.D. Okay, so that's where we begin what we call the papacy. Prior to that, the Roman Catholic Church was not the church-state power that it became, which we refer to as the papacy. The problem was when you had the church and the state blended together. Okay? Now, you go to Rome. You go to Catholic Rome. Did it arise out of Rome? Yeah, yeah, Catholic Rome, Roman Catholic Church. Did it rise to power, this little horn, after 476 AD? Yes, it did. Did it uproot three of those horns? Yes, it did. To make way for the papacy, that's exactly what had to happen, and that's exactly what did happen in history. Speaks blasphemies. Does the Catholic Church claim the power to forgive sin? Does the Catholic Church claim to be in the place of God in the earth? Look at some quotes here. And I share these in my study, and I'm telling you, some people are blown away by this. They just are not even aware of Catholic teaching, and these are from Catholic sources, these quotes, okay? Blasphemies, uh, blasphemes God by claiming, that's the heading there. First part says claiming to forgive sins. Says, seek where you will through heaven and earth, and you will find but one created being who can forgive the sinner, who can free him from the chains of hell. That extraordinary being is the priest, the Roman Catholic priest. Yes, beloved brethren, the priest not only declares that the sinner is forgiven, but he really forgives him. So great is the power of the priest that the judgments of heaven itself are subject to his decision. In other words, the priest decides and heaven says yes or no based on what the priest says. Wow. 
Okay? <laughs> yes, it is. Now look at the next one. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest. Did you get, did you get that? God is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they, that is the priesthood, refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest precedes and God subscribes to it. Okay, that's just a little taste of Catholic teaching on the forgiveness of sin. Okay, claiming to be God. From the encyclical letters of Pope Leo XIII, he says, we hold upon this earth the place of what? God Almighty. I've had some people say, well, yeah, they're representative, just like a pastor would be, you would be as a pastor representative. No, 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 no. <laughs> Look at the next statement. The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. Okay? And then it's interesting, the next one is just claiming authority over Scripture, which is also blasphemy. Catholicism says, like two sacred rivers flowing from paradise, the Bible and divine tradition contain the word of God. These two divine streams are of what? Equal sacredness, still of the two, tradition is to us the more clear and safe. Okay, that's blasphemy, folks. And so, does, does the Catholic Church fit this? Yes, it does. So far, we've got this one, we've got this one, and we've got this one. Did the Catholic Church persecute God's people. Did it persecute believers? Notice the statements under, where are we? Persecutes God's people. You've got to jump further down to that next page. There's, a, there's one quote I have here. Persecutes God's people. That the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. It is quite certain that no power of imagination can adequately realize their sufferings. Uh, I want to tell you Hitler was more merciful in putting people to death than the Roman Catholic Church was. Uh, I don't even want to encourage you to study the Spanish, Inqu Spanish Inquisition and give you nightmares, okay? I want to tell you that in the Holocaust, and we've got, if you've got a, a criminal today, and you want to talk about somebody being a really bad guy, Hitler just ranks up there. You throw Hitler out there and everybody knows what you're talking about. A bad guy, right? Hitler killed six million Jews in the Holocaust. The Roman Catholic Church killed over 50 million Christians in the Dark Ages, and that's a conservative estimate. Some, some historians say over 200 million, and yet nobody bats an eye. It's just amazing. It's amazing when you think about it. It's also amazing from my standpoint when people will say, and you've heard this maybe as a Seventh-day Adventist, people say, I heard your church is a cult. You ever hear that? Yeah. You know, it's, your church is weird. Let's see, you've got a church who teaches that you pray to Mary, count rosary beads for salvation, pay money for indulgences, forgiveness of your sin, even before you commit the sin, but that's not a cult. That's the biggest, most popular church in the world. It's just unbelievable. And it just tells you how the devil has prepared the way for this. Anyway, I don't go into all, I don't go into all that with, with folks, but I'm just saying. Um, but it speaks blasphemies. Has it persecuted God's people? Yeah, we know this from history. Any competent, a person with a competent knowledge or even a beginner's knowledge in history can figure that out. Did he intend to change God's law? Now, I take this two different ways, okay? It depends on when I've presented this subject I have, I've recently switched over to presenting this subject after I present the subject of the Sabbath. I didn't used to do that. And Mark Finley does it that way. And, uh, and this lesson series does it that way. And I like presenting it, the, the Antichrist in that context because it gives it a better context. 
In other words, if I'm presenting the Antichrist before I get to the Sabbath, what I'll do with the change of the law is I'll point out the change of the second commandment, which still blows people away because it's not there, right? Images, whoosh, it's gone, right? Well, how do we have 10? Oh, you just split up number 10 into two. I don't know, maybe you're not aware of that, but what the Catholic Church has done in their... Now, it's not this way, and the Catholic Bible is going to read with the Ten Commandments. But you go to their catechism and say, what are the Ten Commandments? And they're going to say, well, the Ten Commandments... And the second commandment that says that you should not bow down to uh, images, you've got it there in the... Yeah, you've got it there in the lesson. It's been taken out. And so now you have the Nine Commandments, which sounds really strange. So what did they do to get ten? Well, they take the Tenth Commandment that says, Thou shalt not covet... And then it says, thou shalt not cover your neighbor's wife. Number nine, thou shalt not cover your neighbor's goods. Number ten. They split it up so you still have a nice number of ten. A lot of people are unaware of that. And if I haven't presented the Sabbath yet, that's what I'll present when I get into the change of the law. And then when I get into the Sabbath, we'll come back to this part and show the Sabbath too. But it works better when you're sharing this after, because what happens is if you share the Antichrist before the Sabbath, for some people, it's just like, well, why are you picking on... Now, even, granted, we're going through prophecy, we're going through Daniel 2, but some people, why are you picking on the Catholics? And, and you'll hear this. you hear this even from Advent. Why are you picking on the Catholics? But when you've presented the Sabbath, and people are like, well, wait a minute. You know, so you're showing from the Bible that the Sabbath is the seventh day. How did we get off on doing this? Where did Sunday come from? Come back tomorrow night, right? Wait till our next study. And then in the context of the Antichrist, you see why God's calling this out as the Antichrist in this apostate counterfeit system because it's taken the law of God and it's tried to change it. And that's a huge, huge part of the study. So I think it flows better that way. Um, you can share it, the, the changing of law, either way. But I'm going to tell you, you already have your, right here, you've already got it nailed down. I mean, where are you going to go? This is the Antichrist power. You tend to change times and law. We see that either with the second commandment thing or the, the Sabbath. And then he's going to reign for a time, times, and half a time. Now, I've said, I could be wrong. I've said time, times, and half a time, 1,260 days, and that's equals the years. 1,260 years. We saw when the papacy began its reign. Saw it from history books and everything else when Justinian's decree went into effect in 538. If I'm right, then we can expect that 1,260 years from this date, we're going to come to the end of the Roman papacy, the, the reign of power. You know, you, so if we add uh, 1260 to this, where do we come to? 1798 AD. Did anything significant happen in 1798 AD that would lead us to believe that the Roman power had lost, that the church had lost that power? If you look under the reigns for 1260 years, I want you to notice what it says under there. First of all, it's just a description and then a quote. We have already seen that the papal reign began in 538 AD when the Ostrogoth power was overthrown and Justinian's decree went into effect. If our application is correct, we should expect the power of the papacy to be broken 1,260 years later in the year 1798 AD. In a remarkable fulfillment of prophecy, Napoleon's general Berthier entered Rome, into Rome in the year 1798, captured the Pope, and had him exiled to Valence, France, where he died in captivity, in a quote from a paper that is a Catholic paper called the Modern Papacy, says Berthier entered Rome on the 10th of February, when? 1798, and proclaimed a republic. The power, church-state power of the papacy was broken, and prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. I mean, you're just, boom! You, you, you're, there, you can't get around it. So when you go through these points in prophecy, I'm just telling you folks, they're, they're, it's not popular, but it's crystal clear. And the reason that God's so clear on it is all of this is coming around again. It's all coming around again, which we'll, we'll get into uh, a little bit uh, later.
All right, everyone. We are going to get back at it here. Uh, somebody asked a question during the break, and the point is, you, you're going to study. You will have some people you study with. I've had, for example, I've had Roman Catholics say, well, we don't go to, we don't, we don't go to the church for forgiveness. We don't go to the priest for forgiveness. And they'll, they may argue the point, but here's the thing that you have to understand. They're supposed to. <laughs> In other words, you've got to have the confidence. You've got to understand something that American Catholicism is very different now from Catholicism in other parts of the world. One of the most amazing books you might read is a book by a guy named John Robbins called Ecclesiastical Megalomania. <laughs> it does not sound interesting, and it sat on my shelf for years. John Robbins has his uh, PhD from Johns Hopkins University, and his his, uh, one of his areas of study has been the political thought of Rome, of the Catholic Church. Ecclesiastical megalomania. Megalomania is delusions of grandeur and fantasies of power. And ecclesiastical just means it has to do with the church. And so his title is a church that has delusions of ruling the world. And this is his, his, it's his research on the history and the growth of Rome. And he has some fascinating uh, passages and parallels where he shows the, a lot of people are unaware of the, um, what do I want to say, the, the, the involvement of Catholicism with Nazi Germany. And I, I don't have time to get into it. Uh, he touches on some of it. He talks about the similarities between Nazism and the papacy, because both are fascist in their government form, okay? He goes into how Rome subdued uh, the republic, the papacy subdued the republic of Rome to rise to power. And then he has a chapter, I think it's called the subversion of a republic, talking about what he thinks is going to happen where Rome is going to try to ruin this republic and the papacy is going to try to regain the power it had in the Dark Ages. And it's not just conjecture. Um, you know, some of it is, obviously, but it's from a standpoint of somebody who's studied the... But one of the chapters he has is he highlights where in recent years, because we have these statements about Rome back in the Dark Ages and whatever, he highlights in recent years where Rome, Catholic Rome, had the kind of Dark Ages authority in modern Croatia, and some of you may be aware of that. And when Rome, it, Rome's rulership in Croatia looks like the Dark Ages. In other words, there are things happening in the Church of Rome today that look just like they did back there, but not in America. American Catholic Catholicism is different. And now you have the friendly face of Pope Francis and just everything has this different tone. But I'm telling you, that's not, <laughs> it's still Catholicism. And part of, part of Catholicism is the doctrine of papal infallibility. That means you can't be wrong. <laughs> and you just, it's not changing. And Ellen White says in The Great Controversy, if anything's changed, it's Protestantism that's changed. So um, you're going to have people that will challenge, but you've got to be confident that, look, here's the bottom line. I didn't even get into 666. I didn't go into Revelation 13. We looked at Revelation 13 earlier, and you talked about, you saw the 42 months. You saw the persecuting. You saw the blaspheming. All of those things. In fact, in Revelation 13, it says, he opened his mouth and spoke in blasphemy against God 
his temple and those who dwell in heaven. So it spells it out. So let's see, blasphemy against God, because blasphemy is taking a prerogative of God. What would blasphemy of God be? Calling yourself God, taking the name of God, right? He blasphemed God, it says in Revelation 13, then he blasphemes the temple. What happened in the temple? What was the primary work in the temple? Forgiveness of sin, right? And so, I mean, it's, it's very clearly laid out there in Scripture. But we don't have two clues. We have, I just gave you a few. And so, you know, if a person comes up and says, well, I don't know, I, you know, we don't necessarily do that. Well, what about this? Did, Rome, did Catholicism arise out of Rome? <laughs> did it rise to power after 476? Did it subdue three kings? Does it claim to be uh, God on earth? Does it claim the power to forgive sin? Has it persecuted God's people? In other words, it's, it, at the end of the day, it's going to fit Rome, <laughs> even when a person contends a little bit. And so uh, I, had a, uh, I, I had a Catholic person tell me, we don't go to our church for forgiveness of sin. And my question would be, what does your church prescribe for forgiveness of sin? Did they tell you just to go ahead and confess to Jesus? Folks, no, they don't. Pick up a catechism. It does not say just go to Jesus. When I've, got, I've got quotes from Catholicism where they express the Pope's, like Pope John Paul has expressed his concern with the idea of Catholic people that they can just go to for Jesus for forgiveness of sin. He says they can't do that. They need to understand they have to come through the church. And I've got the quotes for that. So I'm just telling you that you might study with a Catholic person like, we don't do that. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> this is what your church believes. And again, it's not about, and this is, that even helps to make the point. Look, I praise the Lord. I've had a, I had a Catholic couple come to me after I did a presentation and a sweet little lady comes to me and she says, you know, they tell us to pray to these saints, but we pray to Jesus. I say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord you pray to Jesus. Your church doesn't think that's okay. <laughs> but that's, so at any rate, your study on the Antichrist power is, is, going, is identifying this counterfeit for reasons that we're going to look at in our next studies together. And what I want to do, I mean, I'll come back and, and, and tie some things together, but I want to move to our study on the law. And then um, I'll backtrack at some point and tie some things in. So the study on the law in this particular set is called Peace on Earth. I'm not going to go into that first. The first thing I want to do is find where I put my notes. And I want to give an overview of some of the significance. I don't even know what to say about some of the significance. The number on that study is six. Lesson six. Lesson six in that set. And, and when we're talking about the Sabbath and the Antichrist and everything, folks, what we're talking about is the law of God. Ellen White says the great controversy is only the last great struggle, or is the great struggle over the law of God, and the final movements are going to be the final contest over the law of God. The law of God is the issue here. And I'll talk about that after we pray. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you again for the privilege we have of being together to study your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit now would guide us in our understanding. Help us, Lord, to, to clearly understand the message that you've given us for this time, especially, Father, as those who believe in keeping the commandments of God and having the faith of Jesus. May we understand the proper place of the commandments as we uh, seek to teach others um, the, the blessing of obedience. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now the first thing I want to do, let me do this. This is going to be a little different. You're, I'm not doing a study on the sanctuary, but I kind of am. Okay? Why did God give the sanctuary to his people? Somebody tell me. It was a teaching tool for plan of salvation. 
Okay? What does the plan of salvation include? Does it include more than our salvation? In other words, is the plan of salvation just me being saved or you being saved? Okay, I hear somebody saying God's, there's a restoration of God's character that's involved in... So let me see if I can make my point. i got to make sure I have enough lampstands here. Extend my... Okay, and then you have a veil. This is an aerial view. Pardon my poor artistry, but it'll serve its purpose. These are angels. That's an aerial view of the sanctuary. You have the most holy place. You have the holy place. You have the labor. You have the offer of, oh, altar burnt offering, and you also had a veil here. So when you come into the sanctuary, of course, you're making your way to the most holy place. Now let me ask a question. What is in the most holy place? Ark of the Covenant. What's in the Ark of the Covenant? The law of God. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. When you're looking at the sanctuary, when you're looking at some structure and you're calling one place holy and then one place the most holy, what is that telling us? Is that emphasis? You call something most holy, why? What would you say the most sacred part of the sanctuary is? What would you say the focal point then of the sanctuary is? It's going to be the most holy place. What's in the most holy place? Well, the Ark of the Covenant is the most holy place. You've got the mercy seat over top of the Ark, and in the Ark you have the law of God. Now, I want you to, not, I want you to understand something here. There would be no need of a sanctuary. Let me back up. What happened in the sanctuary? Confession of sin, and how was sin? How do people receive forgiveness? Symbolically through... The blood of sacrifices. Why were animals sacrificed? For the atonement of sin. What is sin? <laughs> what happens if there is no law? Listen to me very clearly. There is no need for the sanctuary. There is no need for salvation. There is no need for redemption if there is no law of God. Right? And, 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 and incidentally, the Ark of the Covenant as a piece of furniture, what did it symbolize? What happened above the Ark of the Covenant? Let's go to Exodus 25. Now this whole section, in verse 10, starting in verse 10, the whole section is on the Ark of the Covenant. I'm not going to spend, read the whole time. I'll read the whole thing. But if you look at Exodus 25, verse 20, it talks about the cherubim. That's plural of cherub, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. You remember what the Bible said the other day about Lucifer? That he was what kind of cherub? A covering cherub. Okay, that has direct reference right here. These two representations of angels covered this mercy seat. Now notice what it goes on to say. The covering cherub, or the cherubim, shall stretch out their wings, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there, what? I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So what did God tell him? What did he say? I'm going to meet with you here. What is this representing? What is this piece of furniture representing? 
the throne of God, right? Here he is seated, dwelling between the cherubim, on top of the mercy seat. This is representative of the throne of God. What is it that is right underneath the throne of God? The law of God. Why? Because, and don't miss this, there is no such thing as a kingdom or a government without law. If there's no law, what are you governing by? So we have governing authorities called policemen. Or, or, policemen, or what else do we call them? Oh, law enforcement officers, right? And I just want you to understand there's no such thing as a government. A government without law is not a government. It's anarchy, right? And so this is true with the government of heaven. And, and it was because the law, the foundation of the government of heaven was challenged that we have sin, that we have a need for redemption, okay? And so you got to understand this. When you're talking about law, it's interesting how as Christians, we like, oh, Jesus died on the cross to do with the law. And they don't understand the gravity of what they're saying in making that statement. This was at the heart of this system of salvation because God's law is at the foundation of his government. Law in a government does what? What primary function does it serve in a government? Okay, maintain order by doing what? No, I'm enforcing. I'm not talking about enforcing it. What does it do to maintain order? What does the law do? It defines between right and wrong. And in God's government, right is called righteousness and wrong is called sin. Right? And so this is what we're looking at. And we're talking about law. Law defines sin. You've got no sin. You've got no... You've got no law, you've got no sin. That's what Romans 4 and 15 says. Romans 4 and 15 says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, I want you to go to 1 John 3. You're familiar with the passage. And I want to explain something with the newer translations. Used to be, there was a time when most Christians were using the King James Version. And so it would always, in fact, most of us, or many of us have memorized this verse in King James, uh, at least part of it. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, where it says, Who, he, um, whoever, Whosoever committeth sin, is how the King James says it, transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. How many of you heard that before? Now, this is not what my Bible says. My Bible is a new King James, and it says, Whoever commits sin, also commits what? Lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now, I, I don't know, you may have had, I've had some people, some non-denominational or other denominational Christians say, well, you know, it doesn't say transgression of law, it just says lawlessness. Like there's a difference, I don't know, you know, but they go there sometimes. So just so you understand what it's saying here, what the Bible says in the Greek of the New Testament is this, sin, I'm going to put it this way, sin is lawlessness. The Greek word for sin is this word, hamartia. I told you the other day the word for lawlessness is anomia. Okay? Anomia comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law, and the A is negative, so it literally would mean lawlessness. But this word is really interesting. Hamartia is a word that literally means the missing of the mark. Okay? And the imagery of that word is that somebody is aiming for a target, but they don't hit it. 
And that's what it means, missing the mark. You're aiming at something and you're not hitting something. Okay? Now, in the context of the verse, what is the mark? If sin is lawlessness, missing the mark is lawlessness, what's the mark I'm aiming for? It's the law. Okay? So it's, not, it's saying everything that we've always understood. It means sin is missing the mark of the law. It's not living up to the law. It's missing the standard of the law. This is what the Bible describes as sin. So if you don't have a law, what does that do with the whole picture? It, it, it would make absolutely no sense. So sin, according to the Bible, is missing the mark of the law of God or not meeting the standard of God for his creatures, right? The standard of his government. Incidentally, that same law continues to govern heaven. And if you're not in harmony with it, you're not going to go live there. I'm not going to go live there, right? You're going to move in. There goes the neighborhood, right? It's not going to happen. So God's seeking to bring us into harmony. Now, I'm just follow along and bringing different ideas out here that I'll um, bring together in a minute. Now, you've heard, so we've got God's law as the foundation of his government. This is the standard he has for his people. It's a standard of right and wrong. His moral standard, um, and lessons will bring these different aspects out. For example, uh, one, Psalm 119, 172. Uh, why don't you look at that with me? Psalm 119, 172. This is a great verse. As far as God's law being a standard, Psalm 119, 172. It's a long chapter. The Bible says, David says, my tongue shall speak of your word for all your what? Commandments are righteousness. What's the root word of righteousness? Remember, I just told you, righteousness is God's word for right. God's laws defines right, righteousness. All your commandments are righteousness. That's just saying God's law is the standard, his standard of right and wrong in his government. God's law is also, how many of you have heard that God's law is a transcript of his character? Okay, it's not just a list of rules. It is a transcript of God's character adapted to meet man in his fallen condition. In other words, it's spoken in terms that we can grasp, but I want you to see it in the book of Exodus. We didn't, we didn't just cook this up, or we didn't just get it from Ellen White either. In Exodus... Chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 33. We're going to look at verse 18. And I'm going to do this kind of quickly. But I want you to see it here. Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory. Now you may have read this before. In verse 18 of Exodus 33, Moses says, Please show me your glory. And the Lord says to him, I will make all my what? Goodness pass before you and will proclaim what? The name of the Lord. You might have heard this before, but I want you to understand that what the Bible has just done is told us that glory and goodness and name are all synonymous. At least in this context and in many contexts in the Bible, when the Bible talks about glory, what's another way of saying goodness? God's goodness. Character, right? You'll see that in a minute. So God, a lot of times we talk about the glory of God. And giving glory to God, fear God and give him glory. That means reflect his character. doesn't mean just wave your hands in the air and sing. Okay? Giving God glory, God, his goodness. He says, Moses says, show me your glory. He says, okay, Moses, I'll make my goodness pass before you and I'll proclaim my name. Name in the Bible 
is different oftentimes than we use name, even though many of you, how many of your parents here? How many of you used a name book when you named your kids? You went through the name book and you said, what does this name mean? What does that name mean, right? Now, we, you know, we, we can relate a little bit, but in, you go through the Bible and you'll see that names were always associated with character. And so, for example, Jacob's name meant deceiver, right? But when he was converted and he wrestled with the Lord, he was named Israel, prince with God, right? Isaac was named because, you know what the name Isaac means? Laughter. Why? Because both Abraham and Sarah laughed at the whole idea of the, of the thing. And, and Sarah said, because God has made me laugh, and I gave me this, and therefore they named him Isaac, right? And when Jacob had the vision of the ladder, and he woke up, he slept on the stone, right? And he had that vision of that ladder coming down from heaven, and he woke up and he said, surely God is in this place, and he named the place Bethel, which means house of God. I mean, all through the scripture you have these names mean something, okay? And names point to characteristics. And so when the Bible tells us, for example, to pray in Jesus' name, that means to pray in the character of Jesus, in the will of Jesus. That's not like, Jesus, please, I want a Ferrari Testarossa. I like it white. I like really custom wheels on it. And in Jesus' name, dink, attack that on the end. That's not what praying in Jesus' name is. Praying in Jesus' name means to pray in the character of Jesus, in the will of Jesus, right? So anyway, it's important to understand that usage um, of glory and character and name uh, we'll see that played out again a little bit more in prophecy. So he says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. In verse 19, I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to, I'll be gracious and have compassion. And then he goes on to tell him, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. You can't see my face. You'll only see my backside, etc." So we come into chapter 34 when God actually does what Moses asked and shows him his glory. And it's fascinating how it happens. Because in chapter 34... It tells us that God told Moses to cut two tablets of stones like the first ones, okay? This is after he had already broken the first set of commandments. Not, not broken. He threw down the, <laughs> the stones. And then he went back up in the mountain. God says, I want you to cut out two tables of stone. And I want you to be ready in the morning, and I'm going to present myself to you, and, and you're going to present yourself to me on the mountaintop. Okay? So it says in verse 4, So he cut two tablets of stones like the first ones. And then Moses rose early in the morning and went up, to mount, up Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed what? The name of the Lord. Now watch what he says. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. What's he about to proclaim? The name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, etc. What is he proclaiming? His character. And what does Moses walk away from the account with? Two table, a shining face and two tables of stone written with the finger of God. Right? I mean, God said, cut out these stones and come up in my presence. And then as he proclaims his name, what is Moses getting? The Ten Commandments. You following that? In other words, those commandments are a descriptive, uh, again, meeting in, in uh, fallen humans in their condition, but it's a transcription of God's character. There are characteristics that are part of who God is. It's not just what God does, but they're the kind of things that we'll do when we're like God is. So the, tra the, the commandments of God are the foundation of his throne. They are his moral standard, how he defines right from wrong, 
They are a transcript of his character. Who does God's law apply to? I want you to look at Romans with me, chapter 3. I want to make a few more points, and then I'm going to show you how it's laid out in a study. Romans 3. Uh, yeah, in a little bit. Romans 3. I want you to notice verse... In fact, let's hold your finger in Romans 3 and go to John 3. In fact, don't do that yet. <laughs> I want to do something else first. Okay? Let, let, I, want to, I want to go to something else. When you are talking with a, uh, your, your Christian friends about the law, a lot of times what we get into is this. We're not saved, we're not justified by keeping the law. You heard people say that before? And, and the scripture's real clear on that. I mean, I could show you text over and over and over where the Bible says the works by the works of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, right? In fact, we're going to see one there in Romans 3. But, so we can't be justified by the law. And this becomes a big contentious point is, look, you guys are trying to keep the law. You're telling us we got to keep the law. We're not justified by the law. We're justified by faith. Okay, now I want to talk a little bit more about justification in a minute. Uh, some more, uh, I want to ask you what, justification means and i'm going to step outside the realm of christianity for a minute and just suppose and you might have found yourself in a situation like this before where you're in a discussion we'll call it a discussion <laughs> with somebody and it it gets heated a heated discussion let's say you and i are in a heated discussion and it gets to a point where i say listen you're just trying to justify yourself have you ever heard somebody use that kind of language what am I saying when I say that? You're trying to justify yourself. What am I accusing you of? When you're trying to justify yourself, what are you doing? Have you ever said that to your kid? Quit trying to justify yourself. What is a person doing when they're trying to justify themselves? Okay, they're trying to prove their innocence, right? That's what it means. Justification, the root word is just, right? Is justification is trying to show that you're just or you're right. And so when a person is justifying, trying to justify themselves, they're trying to show their innocence, okay? So we're in an argument together, I'm sorry, heated discussion together, and, um, and if I say that to you, I'm just saying, you're just trying to show you're right, and I'm wrong. But I'm telling you, I'm right, and you're wrong. You're just trying to justify yourself. Now listen to me carefully. When does a person try to justify himself or herself? Okay, okay, yeah. Not necessarily when you're guilty. If you're guilty, you shouldn't be trying to justify yourself. <laughs> you should have just admit it. When you're accused. Okay? Now listen to me carefully. Nobody even needs to think about justification if there is no accusation. Justification only exists in the context of accusation. Now here's the big question. Who is accusing when it comes to Christian justification? Now, I know you want to say the devil, but guess what? That's not it. Devil doesn't care. God doesn't care about devil's accusations because they're lies anyway. Well, not all of them are lies. He can trip us up into doing something, but he's a liar and the father of it. Go to Romans 3 now, and I want you to see what the Bible says here in Romans 3 about where the accusation comes from. Romans 3 verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever... The law says, it says to those who are under the law that the Jews' mouths may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become 
guilty before God. You know what it means by the mouth being stopped? Stopped from what? From justifying themselves. Right? Here's an accusation. You say, hey, I'm innocent. I'm not it. Boom. Shut your mouth. You're guilty. <laughs> that's, that's what it's saying. The law of God, when we face the law of God and we can't hide what we've done, we are guilty before God. And who is? All the world may become guilty. Every mouth is going to be stopped. You look at verse 23 a little bit further. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's the point I want you to understand. The Bible says that the law of God condemns us all as sinners because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all condemned by the law. That's why we need justification. If there is no law, what are we sitting around talking about justification for? So it makes no sense, and our Christian friends don't follow this through. They're like, hey, let's not talk about the law because we're not saved by law. We're justified by... Whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you talking about being justified? Why are we going to argue about being justified if there's no law? You don't need to be justified because you haven't done anything wrong. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. As I brought up earlier, Romans 4, if you're right there in Romans, go to Romans 4, verse 15. Romans 4, 15. It says, because the law brings about wrath for where there is what? No law, there is no... Can't transgress a law that doesn't exist, right? Now go back to Romans 3. It says, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is what? Okay, now I want to tell you something, and, and some of you may have heard me give this illustration before. Um, th there's a, it's important for us to understand that what, when we talk about law, what a lot of our Christian friends get confused about is the function of the law. Okay? What do we know isn't the function of the law? Okay, it's not for justification or salvation. Right? Does that mean it doesn't have a function? My wife, uh, some, some friends, of, I, I shouldn't say that, some friends of ours um, some years ago went to Australia and they brought back my wife and I, one of the churches we pastor, brought back this beautiful um, ceramic dish that they got for us in Australia. And my wife used it as a fruit bowl. Okay? Now I'm just giving you an illustration that did not happen. This is not a true story. Okay? Just so that you don't think I'm totally insane, because you know, see what I mean in a minute. Let's just say, here in, 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 in this isn't in my current house, but in one of the houses I lived in, we had our kitchen right by the garage. So if I'm, if I'm going to the garage, I'm going through the kitchen and out the door into the garage. Okay? Let's just say that I'm heading out into my garage one day. I stop by that fruit dish. I take it and I dump it upside down, put all the fruit on the counter nicely. And then I begin to proceed out the door into the garage. And my wife says, ah, wait a minute. What are, we, what, what are you doing with my fruit bowl? Oh, honey, I'll bring it back. Wait, wait, wait. Tell me what you're going to do with it. I just need to change my oil. I need to drain it into something. Right. That's why I said, just so you don't question my sanity, I, I would not even attempt to do that. I don't know if I'd be here today if I had attempted to do that. So I take that. Anyway, listen. So I, so I say, hey, look, I'm going to change my oil in it. I'll bring it back. Look, I'll clean it out. My wife says, you are not changing your oil in that dish. I said, what do you mean I'm not changing my oil in this dish? I mean, I got to have something to change. It's the perfect size. 
She says, you can't change it. Why can't I change it? Because that isn't made for changing the oil in. <clears throat> now, let's imagine that I say, well, if I can't change my oil in it, then what good is it? And I take it and I toss it in the trash can. As I said, I probably wouldn't be here today. Would, now listen to me carefully. Would that have been a reasonable thing for me to do? Why not? I can't use it for changing the oil. Oh, it still serves a purpose? Just not changing the oil. Now listen to me carefully. What a lot of Christians will do when they read in the Bible that the law can't justify is they want to take the law and throw it in the trash, right? Just like I was going to throw that dish and uh, I can't use it for changing my oil. Listen, the law was never given for justification. That was never its purpose. Just like that fruit dish was never given to change oil in. You understand? But that doesn't mean it didn't have a purpose. The function of the law is not for justification. What does the Bible say right there in chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans? That the function is to give a knowledge of sin. The law was intended, and that's again, we've talked about it being the moral standard of right and wrong. The law was always intended to give a knowledge of sin. This is where, like I said, a lot of Christians get tripped up because they'll read that the law can't justify. That's absolutely true. But there still is a purpose for the law. The law still needs to be kept. The law still is a standard of right and wrong, but it's, the law is not going to save us. The law gives us a knowledge of sin. Why? What am I supposed to do when I get the knowledge of sin? How do I get rid of it? Let me ask you this question. If I don't understand, if I don't, know, if I don't recognize my sin, if I don't recognize myself as a sinner, what am I not going to do? I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to look for a savior, right? I'm not going to see any need for Christ. Isn't that true? Why do I need Christ? I'm not a sinner. I don't have any problems. Without the law, there's nothing that will give me a recognition of my need for Christ. The reason the law is there is to give a knowledge of sin to direct us to Christ. Does that make sense? And without the law, there's nothing there to direct us to Christ. And that's just the reality of it. And so there is a purpose in God giving the law, and that purpose was not for justification, but for giving us a knowledge of sin and pointing us to Christ. Once again, without condemnation, there's no need of justification. Justification, the whole talk of justification implies condemnation. That's the condemnation that comes by the law to point us not to the law for cleansing, but to Christ for cleansing. Now, most of your studies will bring up the chat passage in James where the Bible compares the law of God to a mirror. You familiar with that? Look at James with me. James chapter 1, and look at verse 23. James 1, right after the book of Hebrews, you have the book of James, verse, chapter 1, verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect what? Law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So the first thing he does, he gives this example of a man who looks in a mirror and forgets the kind of man he was, and then he compares that mirror to what? The law of liberty, the law of God. 
And he's just telling us similarly what we're looking at in Romans 3.20, that the function of the law is to reveal to us what we couldn't see without it. Okay? So just like a mirror. And now I had a situation where, and maybe this has happened to you before, um, I just moved in to um, an area and I was doing some work on my car. It was a warm day and I don't know, you know, bugs are out and sweat and itchy and whatever else and you know sometimes you you know do this and do this and you know if you've ever worked in a car you know your hands generally aren't real clean and i'm not i don't have a mirror there i'm anyway then the new neighbor comes over and so we strike up a conversation we're chatting there for a little bit so i stop working and and after about 20 minutes or so he goes to do his thing and i'm like well i'm up i may as well go in i'm going to go and use the restroom and i'll get back to work and I go and I look in the mirror, and what do I see? Grease here, grease here, grease here. Oh, what a great first impression, right? Did you shake his hand? And I, and I, I did shake his hand. <laughs> but you know, I know, he might have been working on his motorcycle at the time, so I don't remember. But now here's the thing. Now I, see, I look in the mirror, and when I see in the mirror, what I see is what I couldn't see before. Right? It reflects back to me, and I see something about myself that I didn't see before. So, you know what I did, right? Because I, I wanted to clean up, so I took my face and I rubbed it up against the mirror like that and take the grease off. Doesn't everybody? <laughs> of course, you know I didn't do that. I know that's not the function of the mirror. The mirror can show me the dirt, but the mirror's not taking the dirt off, right? And James is using that imagery to help us to understand the function, again, the function of the law of God. The law of God is not for justification. You're going to use it for justification, guess what? It's not going to work. But it does have a function, and that function is to show us the dirt. But the only one who can clean the dirt away is Jesus, right? And so that, when you're giving a study on the law of God, what you're really doing is you're helping people to understand that the law wasn't done away with, but that, the, that you want them to understand that we agree that the law does not justify, but there is a function for the law of God, and that the law of God will be something that is going to be kept by the people of God. It's a sign of, of uh, our loyalty to God, which I'll talk about in a minute. There's one other thing I want you to look at in Romans 7. And then we're going to have to take a break here. Romans 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. I'm back in Luke for some reason. Verse 14. This is really a great verse. Romans 7, verse 14. Okay, now notice what the Bible says. For we know that the law is what? Okay, the law is spiritual. But I am carnal, sold under sin. What do you call a person who's sold? A slave. What are we a slave to? Sin, that's what it says. That's, this is the Apostle Paul talking here, by the way. Now, don't miss this. He says the law is spiritual and we are carnal. Do carnal things and spiritual things go together? No. So if you want to unite something that's carnal with something that's spiritual, what has to happen? Well, they can't unite. They don't go together. Something has to change, right? Something has to change. Either the spiritual becomes carnal or the carnal becomes spiritual or they won't go together, right? Right? So you've got a spiritual, in other words, you've got a spiritual law is... Does that imply a problem? 
If something is spiritual, is there a problem in the Bible? Does the Bible point out spiritual things as bad? No. What does the Bible point out as bad? Carnal things. Yeah, so the, the spiritual is good. So in the very context, the problem does not lie with what? The law, it lies with the man. And so God's solution in salvation is to take carnal man, make him spiritual man, so that he can be brought back in harmony with the spiritual law. That's Paul's whole point here. The law, he goes on to say a couple verses, or a couple verses before, the law is holy and the commandment, holy and just and good. The problem's not with the law, it's with us. Now, this is what I want you to understand. When it all comes down, this is what we're getting, what we're getting to when we're talking about salvation. Either man has to change or God has to change. Right? We call the change in Christianity, we call that conversion. The reason Jesus said a man must be born again is because he's carnal. Right? And a carnal man, how's a carnal man going to live for eternity in a spiritual place and live by a spiritual law? How is he going to do it? He's not. Has to become spiritual. Right? This is the whole purpose of salvation, is making carnal man spiritual through the grace of Christ so that he can be in harmony. God's law, there wasn't a problem with the law in the beginning, but let me tell you what's happened. This is what's happened in modern Christianity. Modern Christianity has made the cross of Christ, which is about transforming us into Christ's image. It's made the cross of Christ the means to get rid of the spiritual law. Because carnal man can't keep it. You hear this, right? You talk to your Christian friends and say, well, we don't have to keep it. Well, God did away with the law. You say, why would he do away with the law? Because we can't keep it. Oh, that makes sense. You know, I made some rules for my kid not to play out in the road, and they like to play out in the road, so I just got rid of the, ro or the rules. Yeah, well, we'll see how long your kid lasts, right? I mean, the reality is, you don't, God's not going to get rid of his spiritual law to meet fallen man. He's going to raise fallen man to be able to meet the spiritual law. And so for Seventh-day Adventist, salvation is that Christ transforms us and brings us back into harmony with the original way he created us and restores us to that original glory of the, of the creation when everything was good, good, very good. But what modern Christianity has done is they've taken the cross of Christ and the very thing that should establish that transformation is the means of destroying it. Now think about it for a minute. So, so this is what the cross is to many Christians. And they, they don't think it through. I'm telling you, I'm not, this isn't, they, they don't process this. But this is what the teaching, basically, if you follow it to its logical conclusion. You ask a person why Jesus died on the cross, to forgive us from our sins, etc., etc., so we can be saved. And what was affected by that? Well, the law was done away with because of the cross. Right? I mean, you hear this. And the law was done away with because of the cross. Jesus died to get rid of the law that we couldn't keep. Right? We sinned because we couldn't keep the law. So what lies at the root of all our problems? The law. the law. And who gave the law? Then who's the one who's at fault for all of our problems? God. And isn't that what the devil said in the great controversy? So, I mean, this is the lie of the enemy, and people don't follow it through, but if the, look, if you're saying it was the law that was the problem, and Jesus died to get rid of the law, you're blaming God for our problem. The problem isn't God and his law. The problem is my sinfulness. I need change, you need change, we need transform, not God. And so in modern Christianity, it's not man that gets converted. It's God that's getting converted. And once God gets converted, everything's going to be okay. Now, I'm, I'm, you know, nobody's going to say it that way, but that is the reality of what is being taught. And, here, and, and what's funny is, people teach it, and like, you Adventists are such legalists. 
we love God and we're saving. No, you, you, you may, you're painting out God to be uh, the bad guy, but people don't think it through. So when we're talking about the law of God, we're trying to help people to understand that the law of God is holy and just and good. It's the perfect law of a perfect God that is going to bring perfect happiness to his creation. When the law was kept by every creature, there was no pain, there was no depression, there was no heartache, there was no suffering, there was no, right? Everything, the only trouble began when the law began to be violated, transgressed. And God wants to bring his creation back into harmony with that law. Does that make sense? So, if you look at your study guide, I just want to show, oh, oh, it, oh, no, 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 the, the, the peace on earth. Um, I, you know, I want to do a couple things here. Huh? Oh, no, it's called Law and Grace in, in there. And you know what I think I'm going to do is I think I'm going to have you look at the, the Law and Grace study. But before I do that, here's what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to take a five-minute break, so we'll take until 20 after. And um, let's go ahead and do that now. When we come back together, we'll pray, and I'll run through that real quickly. And then I'm going to highlight some Sabbath stuff. All right, everyone. We're going to get back at it. And what I'm going to have you do is go to your Bible docs, Law and Grace Study. So we looked at the Antichrist one a little earlier. It's just back a couple. And I'm, I'm going to use that, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Long grace study in in the in the in the book in the man in the uh, binder, the one that says law and grace. Law let's and grace. yes, and let's uh, go ahead and pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you again for this beautiful day, and Lord, continue to bless our time now. As we study and seek to understand your will for our lives, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to do this quickly because I want to get into the Sabbath. You know, the, the, this, the Sabbath study, there's a few unique things about the Sabbath study, but the Sabbath study is built on the law study. If you don't have the law study clear, then the Sabbath makes no sense. If the law study is clear, a person's not going to get around the Sabbath. That's why it's important for us to understand the law, the role of the law, I have our key points there on the law, on the board. I want you to know, notice how this study goes. I'm not going to look up all the text, but I just want you to see the flow of the study and how it's seeking to communicate the points of the fact that the law is God's moral standard, that we're not saved by it, but that the purpose, you know, that function of the law thing we were talking about, um, that Christ did not abolish the law, but established it, we'll see in the study, and that obedience to God's law is a requirement of the gospel of grace. In other words, it's not for salvation, but our, we're, we're, we're not saved by keeping the law. We are saved to keep the law. Okay? In other words, we brought in harmony. When we're made spiritual, a spiritual person lives within... Let me ask this. How does God make us spiritual? What is the, what is the scripture language? We're born again, right? Okay, we're born again, born of the Spirit. That's conversion. What does the Holy Spirit do to have us born again? What does he do to us? I'm fishing for something here. He, he puts something somewhere. Okay, right. We get a new heart. He puts his law in our mind and writes it where? In our hearts. Now, the, the, that's not talking about the organ that pumps blood. When the Bible uses the mind and the heart, it's talking about in the thoughts and in the affections. 
Okay? And what the Lord's, you know, that's what conversion is. And so the question sometimes isn't, okay, somebody says, well, we can't, we're not going to be saved by keeping the law. Okay, fine. But let me ask you this question. How does a saved person relate to the law? A saved person keeps the law. So let's get past salvation. We'll agree on that and say, yeah, we're not saved by keeping the law. Okay, so let's get saved. Now we're all saved, okay? Now here's the question. How do we relate to the law of God? Because people want to always be on the end of, oh, we're not saved by keeping Okay, we're not saved by keeping it. But listen, a saved person means you've been transformed by the grace of Christ. means you now are, have a heart that is in harmony with the law of God. The law of God is written in your heart. That's the new covenant. And so you love the law. You delight in the law of God. Okay? So anyway, in the study, this study takes the approach of the um, uh, immorality of our current society. So question number one, how does the Bible describe the last days? And I mentioned this the other day, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 and, for and forward says, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, boastful, proud, covetous, blasphemers, unthankful, unholy, etc., and so the Bible, and you'll see, as I mentioned before, the italics will tell you basically the point there. Uh, the Bible describes the last days as a dangerous time when people are self-absorbed and completely moral. Question number two, what is the cause of this state of morality? Deuteronomy 12, 8. Deuteronomy 12, 8. And I'm going to look at that one real quick to make sure I'm thinking of the right text. Okay, I was thinking of the, it also mentions the same thing in Judges, but in Deuteronomy 12, 8 it says, You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right, what? In his own eyes. What was the cause of the state of morality? Everybody's doing what's right in his own eyes. There's no moral standard. Deuteronomy 12, 8, it's right here in the study. I'm just going through the study now. Long, gray study. Um, and and in, in parentheses you have, okay, so question number three. But won't my heart tell me the difference between right and wrong? I'm in the law and grace study. I know, that's why at the beginning of this class period, I said in the binder, I'm going to go through this instead. Huh? I am, I'm justifying myself. I'm going through the one in the binder Instead, and, I, and, I, and I'll show you why in a, in a little bit after we go through it. There's a, in every, and not in every one, but in a lot of the, the, the Emmanuel studies, there's a section with difficult texts. And that's why I wanted to refer to this instead of the other one, okay? So, question number three, won't my heart tell me the difference between right and wrong? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Are you familiar with that? So the answer is no. Your heart is not going to tell you. This is a big thing today in our world. Hey, my heart's just going to tell me. I'm just following my heart. No, no, you're, you better not. Right? Because the heart will deceive you. And then Proverbs 14, 12. Now you know. Remember I talked talk to you about the parenthetical texts? I don't need to turn to these. Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Jeremiah makes the point. But if you want another text, I like Proverbs 14, 12, that says there's a way that seems right or appears right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And I love this illustration. I'm going to try on you, and some of you, if you know it, you know, just don't mess it up for everybody else. But I want you to do me a favor, and I want you to spell the word shop for me. Like if you go to a, a, like a store or a shop, a little gift shop, spell shop. Okay, what's the first thing you do when you come to a green light? 
Man, look at that. That's what happens when you follow your heart. Okay? Okay, now some of you heard that before, but people fall for it all the time. And I love using that illustration. I'll tell you, I've, people I've done it to before still fall for it. Um, it's just something the way, but the point is, you can't just trust your feelings. And you can ask a person in the study, have you ever had a time where you followed your feelings and later on you realized it was a wrong thing? Okay, so this is the problem. We need a moral standard outside of ourselves. We can't just trust our heart. And the Bible tells us that. So how can we know right from wrong? Question number four. Psalm 119, 172, and we looked at that earlier. All thy commandments are righteousness. Well, look at that verse, and I point out to them that the root word of righteousness is right. Righteousness is saying that this is God's standard of right and wrong, his law. And so while our heart can't tell, it right, tell us right from wrong, God's law will tell us right from wrong. Now, I didn't used to have number five, and I'll tell you what. What, what are the Ten Commandments? Um, I'm amazed at how many people don't know what the commandments are. They've never heard the commandments of God. And so I, I, this, just in this verse, what I'll do is, in a Bible study, we'll read through the commandments. Boy, you want to see some big-time conviction coming on people. I mean, imagine if you had never heard the law of God, and here you are reading the Bible, and it's like, wow. And you're reading, thou shalt not bear false witness. That means lying. You should not commit adultery. You should not do most of what people do today. And it's very, so. but you want to, you know, you read the Ten Commandments. This is God's moral standard, okay? Okay, what are the Ten Commandments? Number five, we read them. Number six, how does the Bible define sin? First uh, John 3, 4, which we looked at. Sin is lawlessness. And then a good text that we didn't look at is Romans 7, 7. And Paul says this, I would not have known sin uh, except by the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. It's a great verse because he spells out, you can't go anywhere else, he spells out specifically what law he's talking about. You can say, oh, he's talking about the law of love. No, well, yeah, he is talking about the law of love, but it's a law that says, you shall not covet. So he says, I wouldn't have known sin except by the law. The law showed me what my sin was. It's just a great verse to show that sin is violating God's law, and that's how we know what sin is from what the law says. And that's what Paul tells us there. That's number six. So you see the set, and you notice it's not in parentheses. I go to both of those verses. 1 John 3, 4 and, and Romans 7, 7. And the description will tell you that, the little italics. Number seven, what does the Bible say about breaking just one commandment? Now, how many of you have read the James text where he says, he who uh, keeps the whole law but offends in one point is guilty of all? Have you ever thought about that before? I mean, I've thought about I remember reading that and thinking, that's not fair. <laughs> I mean, you know, I steal a pack of gum and somebody shoots somebody in the head and I'm guilty of it just like he's guilty. That doesn't sound fair at all. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Oh, yeah. But if you read it in James, let's look at it. I'm really trying to go quickly, but I, there, there, this, is a, this is one that I want you to see. James chapter 2, verse 10, says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Now notice he gives the reason in verse 11. Verse 11 starts with what word? For. You know what word we would use? Because. Okay, when you read the four, this is because. He says, so you're guilty. You say, wait a minute, how am I guilty of all of them? Because of this. 
Notice what his reasoning is. Because he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay, so, so notice his point. His point is you're guilty of all, not because the commandments are equal, but because whether you stole something or whether you killed somebody, in both cases, you have offended the lawgiver, right? That's his whole point is, he who said this said this, so you can say, hey, I, all I did was steal a pack of gum. You still disobeyed God. And I like way, the way Ellen White puts it in the book Steps to Christ. She says, there are differences of, and I forget the, the, the exact language she uses, um, I don't want to say degrees, but God regards sins differently, but there is no sin that is small in the sight of God. Okay, so God's not going to look at the person who stole the pack of gum the same way as a person who killed somebody, and yet stealing the pack of gum still cost him his son's life on Calvary's cross. You understand that? And so sin is not a small thing to God. And so what James does is he puts it in the, in the context. And that's what I do with this particular question. Why does the Bible say, what does the Bible say about breaking just one of the commandments and why? It says you're guilty of all because it's not about which law you broke or which thing you did. It's about who you're serving. Are you obeying God or not obeying God? You know, and for a Christian, you want them to have the motive of wanting to serve God. Well, how can I, can I get away with doing this and that? No, 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 no. It's, it's about serving God. You want to wholehearted service to God, okay? So the commandments of God, uh, breaking one is like breaking them all. He says, number eight, doesn't the Bible teach that we can't be saved by keeping the law? And the answer is, and it just read along with me in the italics, yes, it does. The Bible's crystal clear that no one can ever be justified by their law keeping, but it should be noted that God's law was never intended to provide salvation, but rather to give us a knowledge of sin. Now listen, there are Christians who believe that the Jewish nation is going to be saved. Jews are saved by commandment keeping. Are you aware of that? That we Christians under the new covenant are saved by grace through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, but the Jews are going to be saved by commandment keeping. There are people that believe that. Look, folks, the Bible's really clear that nobody's ever going to be saved by commandment keeping. Right? Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, there's only one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved, and that name is Jesus Christ. So people have to understand that the law was never given so somebody could be justified. That was never the purpose of the law. And this is where I'll get into my explanation of, because in Romans 3, 19 and 20, it talks about that. and It says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So you want to explain to them, this is the purpose of the law, to give us a knowledge of sin. Number nine, if the law is the standard of right and wrong, why can't keeping, a, why can't keeping it save us? In other words, if it's the standard of right, why don't I just do it? Why can't I be justified by keeping the law? Because you can't keep the law. Why? Romans 7.14, because the law is spiritual and you're carnal. And a carnal person can never keep a spiritual law. Everything you do as a carnal person is going to be carnal. This is what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, if you're born of the flesh and you haven't been born again, you can't produce spiritual behavior. All your efforts to be spiritual are going to be carnal, because you're carnal. Right? The Bible's full of examples like this. A good tree can't bring forth bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bring forth good fruit. What's the point? You're a bad tree. <laughs> you got to be converted before you can bring forth a good fruit. And all your attempts to try to save yourself, be converted, etc., by doing good isn't going to happen until you're made good by God. And so you're bringing this out in the study. You're helping them to understand this, the, the function of the law and, 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 and the purpose of God's grace to transform us. Number 10, what does the Bible compare the law to? James 1, we talk about that comparison to the mirror. 
how the law shows us our sin, but it can't cleanse us from sin. When the law reveals our sin, who does it point us to for cleansing? Galatians 3.24 is where the Bible says the law was our schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so there you're just building in in those questions. You're building towards, look, the law is not for justification. It's to show us our sin and point us to Jesus. Number 11, when the law reveals our sin, who does it point us to? Oh, I just did that one. Number 12, doesn't faith do away with the need to obey God's law? And we didn't look at this one, but Romans 3.31 is such a great text where it says, do we make void the law of God by faith? I mean, you couldn't ask it clearer than that. But yeah, we get rid of the law. No, no, no. Do we make void? God forbid. No, we establish the law. And I have in the note there in the NIV, it says we uphold the law by faith. In fact, the only way you can uphold the law is by faith. Because faith is what brings the converting power of God. And if you don't have that, you're carnal. And if you're carnal, you can't keep a spiritual law. So, you know, all of this is just making that same point. Um, Doesn't the Bible teach that once we find grace, we are no longer under the law? Romans 6, 14 and 15. Um, Let's look at this one real quickly here. Romans 6, 14 and 15. This is, this is probably the most common text you'll get in objection to the Sabbath. Uh, to not the Sabbath, but the law, and also the Sabbath. This will come out. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. How many of you heard that before? Okay, look, folks, just break it down. What is sin according to the Bible? Transgression of the law, more simplified. Lawlessness or law-breaking, right? Okay, what is dominion? Rule or rulership, right? So sin, law-breaking, will not rule you anymore because you're not under law, but what? Under grace. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time to get into a study on the term under law. I just, taking this verse for what it's telling us, it's saying, and, and let me just put it this way. When the Bible uses the phrase under the law, it is not talking about the requirement to keep the law. It's not talking about people who think we should keep the law. To be under the law means to be seeking the law as a means of justification or salvation. And so when the Apostle Paul says you're under the law, he's saying you're trying to seek salvation by the law. When the Bible says we're under the law, it's saying this is a person who is trying to be saved by law keeping. And his point in the passage is we are no longer under the dominion of sin, right? Sin shall not have, law breaking is not going to rule your life because you're under grace. In other words, when you're under grace, law, if law breaking isn't ruling your life, then what is ruling your life? What, there's only one other option, folks. If law breaking isn't ruling your life, then what's the alternative? Law keeping, right? When you're under grace, because the grace of God can change your heart and make you spiritual, Now you can be living in harmony with the law. Law breaking isn't going to rule your life anymore. I get people tell, I've had Christians who say, hey, I just, look, man, I don't worry about the law. I'm free in Jesus. I'm free to, I'm free in Jesus now. Let me tell you something. Before I ever came to Jesus, I was free to do what a lot of Christians were free to do in Jesus. In other words, look, I could, and now I can live and do what I, I can eat what I want and I can do what I want because I'm, look, I did all that before I came to Jesus. I was free to do all that before I came to Jesus. There was one thing I wasn't free to do. I wasn't free to obey him because a carnal person cannot obey Christ. 
The freedom you gain from coming to Christ is the freedom to obey him that you do not have when you don't come to Christ because you're a slave to sin. Right? And this is the point he's making. in The, the verse itself says, look, you're no longer going to be slaves to sin because you're under grace. So he follows up in verse 15 and says, what shall we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. That makes no sense. So the text itself explains it. Now, I don't want to, I'm not going to spend much more time here. I want to get into the Sabbath a little bit here in our, in our, our time together. Um, it talks in the coming questions about Jesus. Did Jesus teach law to be done away with? Heaven and earth would pass away before his law would pass away, he said. And you can read through the study self-explanatory. I want to refer you to the next page. And I want you to notice the difficult text and objection section. Okay, these are written out very clearly. And so the questions, for some of the questions that people ask, didn't the Ten Commandments originate at Mount Sinai for the Jews only? The answer there gives the text and is very plain. But that's one people ask. Romans 10.4 says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And some people say, yeah, the law has ended. Well, that's not what it's saying. And, and that, just read through that, very simply explains it. Um, Jesus gave us a new commandment, people will say. Well, read about that in that number three. Um, Romans 6.14, I just explained it a little bit, but you can read about that in uh, number four. The law is old covenant, and we are in the new covenant, and we don't need to worry about keeping the law. Have you heard that one before? What is the new covenant, folks? Somebody tell me what the... Yeah, the law is written in our heart. It's awful hard not to have a law in the new covenant when it's written in our heart. And when you read about the covenants, you'll find out that the only difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is in the Old Covenant, the law is on the outside of you, and the New Covenant is on the inside of you. In the Old Covenant, you're carnal. In the New Covenant, you're converted. That's, that's all we're talking about there. The New Covenant means God has converted your heart, changed you, you're a new creature, and now you are brought in harmony with His will. And spiritual things become interesting to you and delightful to you, and you want to do His will, and you find strength to do His will. That's what it's about. I'd love to say more about that, but I want to turn our attention to the subject of the Sabbath. Now, when you get into your Sabbath study, you're really, you've already covered the law. The reason that you're going into the Sabbath is because the law, the, the Sabbath has been challenged. In fact, folks, listen. How many of you have Christian friends who have no problem with the law that says, Thou shalt not steal? Thou shalt not commit adultery? When does the problem come in? All of a sudden, the law is, and I told you this, when you give a study on the law, then you can explain some of this, and most of the people will be like, you know, they're all on board until, if they, if they see the Sabbath coming, you might have some resistance. But if they don't, and I'll tell you, I've done this so many times where I've studied, and people don't see it coming. They're just like, oh yeah, the law, I'm all about the law. We ought to keep the law. We're Christians. We ought to be faithful to God and loyal to God. Great. And we get into the Sabbath study. In fact, Pastor Bachelor says that there was one place he went, he did a series of evangelistic meetings, had a Presbyterian church in town, and he said the people from the church started coming to the meetings, and the pastor himself. And the people got so excited and fired up, and there was revival in their church, and, uh, and uh, the pastor was glad they were coming. And then they got to the subject of the Sabbath. He said in that particular church, they had on the wall of the church, they had the Ten Commandments. And they were so thrilled with everything that was being preached in the meeting, until they come, came to the Sabbath. And in the course of that meeting, which lasts for about a month, that pastor took that Ten Commandments down off the wall of his church and said, hey, we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. All to get rid of the Sabbath. That's what's happening. So the Sabbath grows out of the law issue. 
Um, there's a few things that, that I like to establish with the Sabbath study. I'm just going to, you have it open. If you went, it's the next study here. And I'm just going to walk through this with you. But some key things about the Sabbath, the primary thing you're demonstrating in the Sabbath study is which day the Sabbath is on. There was a time not too long ago in America where Sunday keepers really felt they were keeping the Sabbath on Sunday. It was just a matter of understanding the day. You didn't have all the old covenant, new covenant arguments and all this business that people throw today. It was just a matter of they thought Sunday was the seventh day. And you'd share the Sabbath, and they count on their calendar, and they, lo and behold, the seventh day is Saturday. I mean, that, that's, now it's not, not so anymore. But a lot of your Sabbath study is establishing the fact that the, Saturday, the Sabbath of the Bible is on the seventh day. Now, have you ever run into the situation where you're sharing the Sabbath with somebody, and it's like, well, how do we really know which day the seventh day is? You get into that, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been on that other side of it and said, how do we really know which day? Um... It's interesting to me, even among pastors, there are some pastors with more education than others. And anybody who has even the little bit, littlest bit of knowledge on this knows not to go there. <laughs> it's very easy to show what day the Sabbath is. It's very easy to deal with calendar issues. But they come up, and they come up in most presentations, and this study will do the same thing. Another thing that I like to bring out in the Sabbath study that I mentioned to you, and you'll see it in this particular study, but it won't be in every study, is that the Sabbath, well, you'll, the Sabbath, the fact that the Sabbath was made for man before sin is going to come in in a Sabbath study. This is not something that was made for the Jews. Didn't come, came long before there was a Jew. It was part of God's original creation before sin. But a thing that I like to add into that is that that, that one who rested on the Sabbath was Christ himself. Because in most Christians' minds, Jesus came and Jesus did away. Why would Jesus do away if Jesus established it? Okay, now you're going to see that in this study. So let's uh, walk through this Sabbath study. First question, what makes God worthy of our worship? Now I'm not going to look up all these texts just for sake of our time. But Revelation 4.11 spells out very clearly because in, in the, the creatures that are worshiping God say that you are worthy, O Lord, to receive worship, glory, and honor because you created. It's right there very plainly in the text. So, while we could, and I'll tell the person while, when I'm studying with them, while there are maybe a lot of reasons we can give to worship God, you know, we could list out a bunch of things. What is said here in Scripture is the reason he claims the right to be worshipped is because he is our creator. Okay? So that, that's what makes God worthy of worship. Now, one of the things that's been happening in, when you're studying is when you gave your great controversy study, they saw that there's an issue about worship and who's worshipped. Lucifer wanted worship, he wanted Christ to worship, and he still wants worship, right? They come into the Sabbath study, they're going to see that. They come into the Antichrist study, they're going to see that, and they're going to see this issue of worship as a big issue. So in the Sabbath study, you're bringing this out. This is, this is why we worship God, because he's the creator. And of course, if you know anything about the Sabbath, you know where that's going. Because the Sabbath is the sign of creation. That's why he asks us to worship on the Sabbath day. I mean, worship the Creator on the day he set aside as a memorial to remind us he's the Creator. So, first question, what makes God worthy of our worship? Because he's the Creator. Number two, which person of the Godhead is the active agent in creation? And I will have you look this up 
Now, I use Colossians 1 here, which is a good passage. One of the things I did with the Bible Doc studies, because I told you they were put together originally for Bible marking, if you've ever marked a Bible, one of the challenges you run into is you start to get into topics that use the same texts. And then you get a big mess in the margin of your Bible when you're marked. So uh, what I would have probably gone to is that parenthetical verse, John 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him. Without Him nothing was made, etc. But I used it in another study. So I used Colossians in this study, which says basically the same thing. And you have the other in parentheses, so you can share both if you want to. Colossians 1, verse 13, the Bible says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So we're talking about Jesus here now. Father has conveyed us into the kingdom of Jesus, the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him. And people get tripped up. What does it mean, firstborn? What's the next word? Overall creation, what's the next word? For, what's that mean? Because, this, he says, this is what I mean. Because he, what? Sorry, I just lost my place. He's, you know, for by him all things were created. Uh, for that, that, that term firstborn can be used in a lot of different ways. But here it's talking about him being the first or having the preeminence over everything because he made everything. So it says, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, what? All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Well, he can't obviously be created if he created all things that exist, right? So anyway, number two, which person of the Godhead is the active agent in creation? Jesus Christ was the creator, okay? Now, Number three, what did or how did Jesus end his work of creating? And then you go to Genesis 2 and it says that as he finished creation, he rested and he blessed and he sanctified the seventh day. Right? So now in the context, we're talking about worship of Jesus and Jesus himself after he finished creating, rested on the seventh day and commemorated his works on that day by establishing the Sabbath. You follow that? Number four. Was the rest that Jesus entered on the Sabbath a physical rest? And I think uh, Pastor Bohr brought this up Sabbath morning. Did he get tired? And this is, you know, now look, I have to be careful here. Um, we have all kinds of jokes in the Adventist church. We talk about uh, on Sabbath afternoon uh, doing lay activities. You ever hear that one? Right? Wink, wink. Lay activities. Taking a hike to the springs. You ever hear that one? Uh, the bed springs, right? Because Adventists are notorious for napping on Sabbath afternoons. Well, I'm not going to tell you you can't ever physically rest on the Sabbath, but God's rest was not a physical rest. He wasn't worn out. And I, I hadn't really thought about it as much until Pastor Boer brought it up. How tired do you get saying, let there be, let there be, let there be? <laughs> Boom. So, so the Isaiah 40 Verse 28 tells us that the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, never uh, get, doesn't get tired or weary, right? And so we know from that verse that it wasn't, no, he obviously wasn't exhausted. And then I go to Exodus 31, 17, and if you were here Sabbath morning, Pastor Bohr, that's where he went, where the Bible says that when he finished his creation, he rested and he was refreshed. 
And I always give the example at this point, any one of you can probably do this, if you've ever worked on any kind of project, um, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes that uh, something, and I'm, I'm losing the exact verbiage, but um, the ending of a thing is better than the beginning thereof. <laughs> and if you've ever worked on a project, there's something about being done with it. <laughs> and even if it doesn't turn out just exactly right, there's still something about, for example, if I'm putting a deck on my house, there's nothing like being done and putting a chair out there and just sitting and, you know, and maybe this board wasn't cut straight and that, but boy, it sure feels good to be done. But when God finished his creation, everything was what? I mean, it was perfect. And on the Sabbath, God's rest was not a physical rest. It was a spiritual rest of satisfaction in a perfected work. Now, that's important. That's an important point in the study, and I'll, I'll just summarize it here, because what that tells us is the rest of the Sabbath is resting. Now, before sin, it was a rest in God's perfect work. After sin, it's resting in the fact that the God who created everything perfect is able to recreate everything perfect. And listen to me, that includes you and me, okay? And so, if you, on the Sabbath day, don't believe that God can recreate you perfect, sinless, holy. You are not keeping the Sabbath. That is the rest that we have on the Sabbath. We are resting in that faith that God can do that for us. We look at the evidence of his creative power as the evidence of his recreative power. Right? And so now first, so this, this initially in the study, what was the rest that Jesus centered a physical rest? No, it was a spiritual rest. He was refreshed and satisfied with his completed work. And I'll bring up an example of working on a project and how I just felt so good to have it done, right? Number five, what word does the fourth commandment begin with? It says, remember the Sabbath day, okay? And I like to bring out here, when you, when you make something that is designed to make people remember, you call that something a memorial, right? And so the Sabbath then was a memorial pointing back to the fact that God created and I want to interject this here. Remembering God as our creator. In fact, I jotted it down, the verbiage of this, in, in the book uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. Ellen White makes the point that one of the devil's purposes in teaching evolution and getting people to forget creation was to defraud humanity of the dignity of his origin. Folks, when you realize that you are not an accident, that every single person here was designed, not God didn't mass produce you in a big bucket. Everyone here has been specifically designed by a creator. That invests us with value and purpose that nothing else does. And the devil would defraud us of that. What is the word she used again? The phrase, the dignity of our origin. That's what, uh, page 44, Patriarchs and Prophets. So the Sabbath is investing us with value. And if the Sabbath, and Ellen White says this in another place, if the Sabbath had always been kept, there would never have been an atheist, never been an evolutionist, because you always would have been reminded of God your creator. Right? So the Sabbath begins with the remember. That tells us it was a memorial. God wanted us to remember that he's our creator. Number six, in light of these facts, what title does Jesus take upon himself? He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, that makes sense. He made it. He rested on it. He set it apart as a memorial and calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. That all fits together so well. 
And then I interject here, and you'll see it in the note, and it's one of my parenthetical texts. This is why the Sabbath is called the Lord's Day. There's only one day in the Bible called the Day of the Lord, and that's the Sabbath. And the commandment is called the Sabbath of the Lord. In Isaiah 58, it says, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day, <laughs> there's only one day consistently through Scripture called the Lord's Day, and that's the Sabbath. Jesus said he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And so when people come to Revelation 1.10 and it says, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he doesn't say what day it is, to assume that would have been any day other than the Sabbath finds no foundation in Scripture. It's ludicrous. It's like, no, that would be the day that God's always called the Lord's day. Sometimes I bring that in in the study at this point, that Jesus called himself Lord of the Sabbath. That's why in Revelation it calls it the Lord's day. You kind of interject it there, and you're heading him off at the past, so to speak. That's right. That's right. And that's why I say, scripturally, there's only one day ever been called the Lord's Day. Number seven, what else is the Sabbath to remind us of? Ezekiel 20, 12, and 20 is where God says, I am the God who sanctifies you. It's a sign between you and me that I'm a God who sanctifies, sets you apart for a holy purpose. So the point is this. God set apart the Sabbath from creation as a sign that he is our creator. Once sin entered the picture, now no longer is he just our creator, he becomes our recreator, right? And so now the Sabbath is not just a sign of creation, but of recreation or sanctification. And, and that's you know, the point. So now the Sabbath is a sign of, or we could say this, a sign of recreation or a sign of sanctification, or we could say a sign of redemption, right? The Sabbath becomes to us, and, and let me put it this way, the Sabbath becomes to us the sign of justification by faith, doesn't it? Yes or no? I mean, Justification by faith is God transforming us and saving us. He, the, the Sabbath is a sign of that transforming power. So the very thing people say, well, you're legalistic to keep. No, we don't. And I like the way Pastor Doug uh, Batchelor brings this up. I'm not telling you to work on the Sabbath. I'm telling you to rest on the Sabbath from your works. You're the one talking about working on the Sabbath, right? In other words, we say rest. Why? We're resting from our works because we're resting in our trust and our faith in his works. Right? It becomes a sign that our trust, all the works I can do are not enough to save me. And so on the Sabbath, I rest as, a, as an acknowledgement of that fact that salvation comes through him. That's inherent in the Sabbath. Think about the commandment. The commandment says, remember the Sabbath day to what? Keep it holy. How are you going to keep something holy? Let me ask it this way. Okay, and I know a number of you have kids. A number of you are kids. A number of you still act like kids. So either way, it's going to fit with somebody. <laughs> You, you walk in, let's say you're walking into a, in a, into a room and it's a nice white marble floor. Oh, it's just been cleaned and polished, right? And you've been outside in your bare feet and you've got muddy feet. And you're walking into the room and somebody says, hey, try to keep the floor clean while you walk across it. How's that going to happen? It's not going to happen unless what? You can't take your shoes off because you're barefoot. You're going to have to wash your feet, right? Now listen to me, don't miss this. I can't keep the floor clean because I'm not clean. I can't keep the day holy because I'm not holy. Now why would a God who knows everything about me tell me to keep something holy when he knows I'm not holy unless inherent in the commandment is a promise to make me holy? And that promise is in his creative and recreative power. See, I'm looking back to God's creative power and I can believe in his recreative power and I hear him tell me to keep a day holy. I'm like, Lord, you're going to have to make me holy to keep the day holy. Okay, so the Sabbath really becomes a sign about God's creative and sanctifying power. And we need it. And we need it. Number eight, 
Which day is the Sabbath day? This is one of the best passages in Scripture. I'm not going to look it up. In Luke 23, the end of Luke 23 to Luke 24 tells us about these events of the crucifixion. Folks, listen to me. Just about everybody you talk to, at least those who are going to argue with you. I mean, if they don't have a Christian background, they're not going to argue it anyway. But if they, and it's really interesting to me, people who, are, who don't have a Christian background, they're with you right now. They're going to read this in the Bible. It's plain as day. It's the, per, the people who've grown up being taught something different that are going to have to be challenged. But those people will almost universally be on board with the events of the crucifixion. When we ask them about the day Jesus... So if you go to uh, this passage that it's pointing to, it tells us that Jesus was taken off the cross. The women that followed him went to prepare his body for burial. But the Sabbath, according to the commandment, came. So they went and rested, according to the commandment, with the intention of coming back after the Sabbath to finish the job, okay, on the first day of the week. And the Bible tells us the day he was taken down was the preparation day. It says he rested in the tomb. They went home and rested according to the commandment. So that day after the day he was taken down was the Sabbath according to the commandment. And then very early on the first day of the week, the passage tells us, they went back to the tomb. So we know that the day between the day he was taken down and the day that the Bible calls the first day of the week is the Sabbath according to the commandment. And you, like I said, almost universally, you ask a Christian, what day was Jesus crucified on? We call it good what? I mean, they know it. Good Friday. And if they don't know that one, what day did, was he resurrected on? Oh, come on. Easter Sunday. The, command, but the, but the Sabbath according to commandment is the day between those two. What day is it? It's Saturday. There's no question. That's why the Jewish nation to this day, the, the Jewish nation has always kept there's no confusion. The whole nation wouldn't have lost track of the day. The Sabbath, according to the scripture, is on Saturday. And in this uh, description, I go into the fact that languages, over 104 languages in the world, the day, their name for the, you know, our name for the seventh day of the week is Saturn. Saturn's day. But for most languages, it's, it's Sabbath, right? Sabado, Subota, and what have you. And so that's brought up in here. Um, number nine, did Jesus keep the Sabbath day holy? Bible says in Luke 4, it was his custom. What's a custom? It's something people do on a regular basis. Yes, Jesus observed the Sabbath. Some people, you have people say, well, Jesus kept the Sabbath because it was, uh, it, it was Jewish and uh, he did it because he was trying to um, he didn't want to offend, uh, he wanted to keep the customs of the Jews. Folks, if Jesus kept the customs of the Jews, he wouldn't have been crucified. Okay? So it, it's just funny, it's the things that people will bring up. But uh, number 10, were the acts of Jesus on the Sabbath a violation of the Sabbath commandment? Have you ever heard people say, hey, look, Jesus broke the Sabbath all the time. That's why the leaders were mad at him. He was going and healing people and stuff. But in Matthew 12, Jesus says, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. What does the word lawful mean? Keeping the law. Now listen, if Jesus was doing away with the law, why would he care whether it was lawful or not? He wouldn't. So the, the very point that he says it's lawful is saying what I'm doing is not breaking the Sabbath law. It's in harmony with it. Okay? So Jesus kept the Sabbath. Number 11, did the apostles keep the Sabbath day? And you'll see, and I'm not going to take a lot of time here, you've probably been, but we go through. The apostles kept the Sabbath. And you count them all up in, in the, the, 
um, examples the Bible gives where Paul would, would stay, for example, a year and a half in one place. He kept the Sabbath the whole time he was there. Count the Sabbaths, 84 Sabbaths in, in, in that time period or whatever else. So, yes, the apostles kept the Sabbath day. One of my favorites is number 12, and I know that we're, we're out of time here, so but I want to make these last uh, points. Was there a new day set aside for Gentile believers to worship on? Now, this is one of the best passages, because in Acts 13, it tells us that there were two crowds of people listening to the Apostle Paul preach. There were Jews and Gentiles. It says when the service finished up and the Jews had all left, the Jews had the privilege, and you've got to understand this, and you see it in the passage, the Gentiles had a different place they had to sit in the church. They had to wait until the Jews got to ask all their questions and they had to wait their turn and they would come up as the lesser citizens to be able to talk to the apostles. Now let me just ask you a question. If you have to pick a church to go to, are you going to pick the church where you've got to sit in the back and, and be quiet and if, if, if there's another church where you can be fully accepted? Keep that in mind. So once the Jews leave, the Gentiles come up and they basically say, we've loved this sermon. Where can we hear more? Please tell us more. Uh, in fact, they say, um, can we hear more the next Sabbath? Now think about it for a minute. This is what Christian, the Christian world says today. They say in the New Testament church, the apostles were worshiping when? They're worshiping on Sunday. They're only in the synagogue. Why? Because of the Jews. But they had a whole other religious service for the Gentiles, right? That's what people say. Now let me ask you a question. You're a Gentile believer, right? Here's the Apostle Paul, and it's Saturday, and you're preaching tomorrow morning. And they say to you, hey, I'm begging you. This is what the Bible says. They begged them. Can we hear more of this next Sabbath? What are you going to tell them? Next Sabbath, man, come tomorrow. You won't have to sit in the back tomorrow. You can sit up front, and you can ask them. But what does the Bible say? It says nearly the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city came together to hear the apostles. Why? Because there evidently was not a first day service in the New Testament church. It's just very clear when you look at that passage. So it's a great passage to just, we see Jesus keeping the Sabbath, the apostles keeping the Sabbath. There's no Gentile Sabbath. Number 13, did Jesus expect his followers to keep the Sabbath after ascension to heaven? Matthew 24, he says, pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath day. Why is he saying that? Sabbath isn't important anymore, is it? Evidently it was. Among those believers of Christ. Number 14, will people keep the Sabbath in the new earth? Bible says from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh will come and worship. We see consistency throughout of Sabbath keeping. There's never a break in it, right? Number 15, does it really matter to God which day we keep? And one of the examples I like to, I used to give a real radical example. I am wrapping up here. I know we went over, but I had to finish this up. But I used to have a um, Nazi flag. I mean, I wasn't a neo-Nazi. I ordered it. I, I ordered it for an example, for an illustration, okay? And I would say, I'd come to this, and I felt it was a little bit radical. I felt it was a little radical, so I backed off of it. But I would say, you know, hey, one day, people say, hey, what does it matter, one day versus another? It doesn't matter, one day is just like another day. I'd say, yeah, I agree with you, right? So what's the difference between one flag and another flag, right? Fly one flag, fly another flag, right? What if I want to fly this flag? <laughs> and uh, it was... Um, anyway, I got away from using that. I thought someday they're gonna, somebody's going to find me with that and I'm going to be accused of being some neo-Nazi leader or something. But the point is, I will still use that illustration, maybe not with a Nazi flag, but I'll just say, does it make a difference? Sure, it makes a difference. You've heard people make the, give the example of a, of a person gets married and a, a man gets married and his wife has six sisters. 
One out of seven, right? Doesn't matter which one. Gets out, gets married, goes from the wedding into the car. They're going to leave the wedding, right? For the honeymoon. And he gets in the car and his wife's not in there. One of her sisters is in there. Hey, it's okay, right? One in seven. No, it makes a difference, right? And so there's these different, there are different ways you can illustrate that one does make a difference. And the Sabbath day is God's day. He set it apart. And it makes a difference to those who uh, honor him. Um, one, tree, tree, huh? one tree, another tree. There's a lot of good examples. So number 16, last thing. How did Jesus, how did Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, ask us to express our love to him? We'd say, I love Jesus. Great, you love Jesus? What did Jesus say that he wanted you to do to show that love? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And um, so that is the, the gist. Of, now, most of your studies are going to follow a similar uh, line of reasoning. But you're wanting to bring out that the Sabbath was instituted by God. I like to bring out the purpose of the Sabbath. It's a time where God, and I didn't, I didn't touch on this as we were going too fast, that in God sanctifying us, it's because of that time he set apart that we spend that time with him on the Sabbath. And that time is a time for, for us coming close to him. And that the sanctification process is not independent of the time we spend with God. And the Sabbath is holy time. Now, the difficult objections, you can read through those. They're very uh, uh, detailed, spelled out here. So what happens when people say, well, the disciples all came together to break bread on the first day of the week, and that means it's a new Sabbath. No, sorry, that's listed in there. Or the collection on the first day of the week, it's listed there. The law was nailed to the cross. All of that is here in the difficult texts and objections that you can look at. And um, having said that, we're going to finish up and try to pick up some of what we missed at another time. Anyway, we always do this. We try to cover as much as we can, and we always end up with, with uh, good intentions. But I hope this has been helpful in some degree in understanding where we come from with these topics. These are important biblical topics. And it's not something we cooked up as a church, but this is clear teaching of Scripture. The law of God is a standard of righteousness. The Holy Sabbath day is, is Jesus' sign of loyalty between himself and his people. And it's the sign of our, it's the sign between us and God that we believe in Jesus for righteousness and not in our own works. Yes? Where does the Sunday church come up with the Lord's Day is Sunday? A tradition. And convenience, and that, and that's what I and that's what I was saying. No, that's what I said. To say Revelation one verse ten, and John says, "I was in the spirit on the Lord's day." To apply that to any other day than the Sabbath day is ridiculous, because there's nothing in Scripture that whatever everywhere in Scripture you find that God saying the seventh day is is the Sabbath of the Lord. It's my, the seventh day. Sabbath is His holy day, and so the only place that you find. Uh, the, the, the Sabbath, the Sunday being the Lord's Day is, is uh, tradition. And I guess it's convenient because it doesn't spell out which day other than saying it's a Lord's Day. And it's a convenient way of people saying, oh, well, yeah, this Lord's Day, this is the new Sabbath. And that's what, what people will say. But there's no scriptural uh, uh, foundation for that. Yes? I've noticed over the years that uh, business calendars are starting to change. Business calendars, European calendars will start the day of the week on Monday, so Sunday ends up as the 7th. Um, it hasn't fooled anybody. In other words, people, I can't tell you how many people have found their way into the Adventist church. They'll say, you present the Sabbath, and they'll say, you know, when I was a little girl, 
I remember asking myself, why are we worshiping on Sunday when the seventh day, Sabbath, Saturday is the seventh day of the week? Yeah, I mean, mom, what's the Sabbath? yeah. She said, oh, that, that's something we don't do it Right. Well, look, folks, let's, uh, let's break here. We're going to be back at 3.30. And thank you for your patience. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we are just so thankful for the word of truth. And Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you have given us a sign between us and you, not, that, not only that you are our creator and that we are worth an infinite amount because we are, we're made uniquely by you, each one of us, but you are also our recreator who has promised to recreate us into your image and to take us home to heaven to live in harmony with your perfect will as expressed in your law. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of camp meeting now. Bless us until we come back together this afternoon for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Thank you.